Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. Well, no, it's not Edwin. I'm not even going to pretend. It's Marge Halperin. Marge Halperin, mega worldwide, because, you know, Hal Sparks claims to be mega worldwide, and I was thinking about that driving in, listening to him. We're on the Internet. Isn't that pretty much mega worldwide, Paul? I think we're in. So, yeah, Marge Halperin, mega worldwide here with the show this afternoon. And we have a lot of great guests and important things to talk about, and we want to hear from you along the way. Uh, if you're a regular listener, you know our, know our phone number. If you're not, don't worry. We'll give it to you over and over again. 773-763-9278 is our number. And... Uh, we're going to talk about city politics today with one of the leading experts on City Hall, Greg Pratt, the Chicago Tribune reporter. If you haven't already advanced, ordered your copy of his new book, The City is Up for Grabs, do it now because it'll be released April 2nd. I'm so excited to have it in my hands. That'll come up at 2 o'clock. We'll have some time in the 2 o'clock hour to talk about national politics. Yeah, we're going to talk about that new poll that's making everybody even more concerned than we were before about this election. But hopefully there'll be a bright side to that, too. Well, spoiler alert, there is a bright side. We need to do the work. And that's uh, where you go to IndivisibleChicago.com and find out how. And we'll talk about that, too, in the 2 o'clock hour. And at 3 o'clock, we're going to talk about election protection. Illinois is one of only a handful of states that doesn't have uh, legislation protecting election workers from being doxxed the way those poor women were in Georgia trying to do their jobs, eating a ginger mint and getting accused uh, by the right wing of... Uh, stealing votes from the guy who lost. And uh, also, we don't have a good deep fake bill. If you think, well, you'll just get good at telling the difference between real images and deep fakes, forget it, because you're not going to be able to. And we'll talk with the leading expert on that uh, from Public Citizen in the three o'clock hour. But we're going to start now with an issue that has me all wound up. It doesn't take much, I know. I get wound up by a lot of things. But really, the stadium funding idea is driving me crazy. What makes these billionaire stadium owners think that we owe them money um, when, in fact, we already owe money from the last time we gave them our taxpayer dollars? There's so many important uh, things that need to be done in our community, uh, com- neighborhoods that are disinvested for decades that need our tax dollars, education. We, we don't have bus drivers for Chicago public schools anymore because there's no money for it and no drivers, which, by the way, compare that to the thousands of migrants who just arrived looking for jobs, but that's another topic. No, when we look at stadium funding, there has to be a way to hold the line and say, we'll help you. You may need infrastructure. You may need policy changes, but tax dollars are off the table. I'm hoping that's the way the legislature goes. I know that's the way my representative is going, Cam Buckner, who's one of our guests this hour. Cam, welcome to the show. 
Hey, Marge, thanks for having me. Always great to be with you. Great to have you. We also are speaking this hour with Joe Ferguson, who is the new president of the Civic Federation, formerly the inspector general for Chicago. There couldn't be a better fit for Civic Federation. Congratulations to them and to you, Joe, for finding the right place to continue your great work for the city. And welcome. Um, thanks for having me, and those are very kind words, for which I thank you as well. And I think uh, Cam and I probably would just learn a lot by listening to you for the next hour, but happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been immersing uh, myself in this, as you both know. Um, as a South Loop resident, this is a kind of key issue for me, but also as a taxpayer, and primarily as a taxpayer. I will say I don't think the 78 concept is on the face of it a bad idea. This could be uh, a good kind of development in land that must be developed. I know I have neighbors who would love to see it be a large park area, but we don't own it. Um, there's private developers who own it and have the right to develop there something, but it needs to be something that enhances the community and is not a financial burden. And I, I could ask either of you this question. Maybe I'll start with Joe. Fundamentally, what's wrong with taxpayers buying a stadium? I don't know if um, anyone happened to hear Scott Simon this morning on NPR. I did. Um, yeah, and he kind of captured um, sort of the, the 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 environmental sort of spirit of really what's going on here. And, he, and his characterization was: what we're talking about are billion-dollar businesses owned by billionaires um, paying athletes who make tens and hundreds of millions of dollars for which families have to pay hundreds and thousands of dollars to see for the right to sometimes see a good product. But um, the only reliable thing is um, paying uh, $15 for a beer and $10 for a hot dog. Um, uh, with the money in significant part feeding back around to those billionaires. And um, you put it well, I think, um, in, in, in the introduction here, um, at a moment when we have a profound number of issues, both on the table and looming as cliffs. Um, and, um, and so this, these questions should not be pursued as a matter of bright, shiny objects that are being put on the table by millionaires and billionaires, they should be pursued in the context of what is best for us as a community. Um, and uh, you named a few things, and I'm not going to list them off now because I suspect we'll get to them all. But um, we don't do it in the context of the larger landscape and set of challenges. Um, we're all dazzled by the bright, shiny object. And I'm, I'm a sports lover. I played sports in college, not at the level that uh, your other guest played. Mm -hmm. um, and there is something wonderful about sports, which is as fans and as spectators, we're all equal. Um, but um, this, is, this all comes at a great cost at a challenging time. It does indeed. And Cam, you are a football veteran and also a veteran in Springfield. There, there seems to be incredible pressure on you and the other lawmakers to make sure we don't lose the Bears or the Sox. How do you respond to all that pressure? Sorry, I'm sorry. Can you there you now? go. Yep. You Great. wisely sorry muted in our during our yeah, intro. <laughs> yep. 
Um, this entire stadium palooza uh, that we are seeing unfold in Springfield is just really interesting to me. And it, it, for me, it begs some some deeper questions about how we got here. Um, in, in your intro, you talked about uh, billionaire uh, stadium owners asking for more money for new stadiums. The only correction I would make is that these are not stadium owners already. Um, they got free stadiums uh, mm-hmm. before, uh, either through leases or through some kind of agreement. Uh, I know as, by, as human beings, we were, we're captured by the past, and, and so folks think that uh, – Maybe we're gonna. Maybe people should do the same thing we've always done. Um, but you know, I, I, I've been very clear about the fact that it, it needs to be a new day um, in the way we deal with stadiums and the way stadiums are built. And for the life of me, and maybe maybe Mark, you and Joe can help me with this. I, I don't understand kind of how we got to this part, this, this point as a country, right? Um, there was there were no such things as stadium subsidies uh, before 1950. Uh, and then after that, it, it just became rampant. And so a country who just finished a world war um, decided that they were going to start paying for people to play sports uh, and, and have, uh, you know, these new digs in their cities. It's just very weird to me, right? And so, um, you know, I, I think we've got a lot of soul searching to do we got to have some real conversations about how we move things forward uh, in the in the purview of the, the, the NFL. There's only one stadium ever built, or sorry, two stadiums ever built uh, since 1950 in that league that have been completely privately financed. Um, I think we should have conversations about what that looks like in Chicago. And as far as uh, Major League Baseball is concerned, um, you know, we're talking some really big numbers uh, in this supposed White Sox proposal. Uh, and we've got to, I think, have some come-to-Jesus meetings and conversations about uh, how we got here and, and where we move uh, after this. You're right. And how we got here with the debt that exists. And let's be clear, we owe $50 million on the current Sox park. We owe... Depending on how you evaluate it, it's anywhere between 400 and 640 million dollars on Soldier Field. It's 400 if you pay it off right now, I think, and then 640 if we continue to the end of the term. Um, and that's because our prior mayor Emanuel, I think, twice kicked it down the road, and we've been paying uh, principal, but not interest in the interest or interest and not principal, and that keeps growing. Uh, the interest does. So um, we have bad deals. And we could throw uh, good money after bad. And, uh, but as you said, uh, they don't they don't own these stadiums. We do. They are team owners, not stadium owners. And that is an important correction. There's and, a, and, they, and they don't own the debt because of that. We own that debt. That's right. The people own the debt, not not the organizations. Here, here's a stat that got me. Uh, the Berkeley Economic Review is one of a mountain of studies that show public tax investments in stadiums do not yield any kind of reasonable rate of return. There's a million studies about that. But the Berkeley study shows the average stadium generates $145 million a year, but none of this revenue goes back to the community. So, uh, you know, NASCAR gave us $2 a ticket, which was paltry. I've complained about that. When they have tickets that go up to $3,000, why are we still getting $2 a ticket? But apparently we've reentered uh, into another year of that deal. But what about a percentage of tickets or merchandise or other kinds of returns so that the money the stadium generates comes back to the uh, actual owners of the stadium, the taxpayers who paid it? Has anyone ever done that around the country? Do you know, either of you? 
going back to the t- to the taxpayers themselves, I'm not I'm not aware of that. But your your, your setup to the question, I, I think, is really important, and it ties into one of the observations that Cam made in his opening remarks uh, in noting no stadium where stadiums were subsidized prior to the 1950s, the lore has always been the representation of revenue. And whether it's revenue of the stadium itself or revenue um, that is generated um, from drawing people to the surrounding area, there aren't examples of those numbers actually coming in pretty much ever. Um, uh, The I think it's Alan Sanderson from the University of Chicago, an economist, very popular professor um, at the University of Chicago for his um, capacity to capture things in colorful ways. As as a general matter, um, the least um, uh, productive use of valuable urban land is either as a cemetery or as a football stadium. And in some respect, we've just we're, we've been living that with respect to Soldier Field. Now we could do that better, um, and there are some nuances here that I, I hope we do talk about. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is um, these these stadiums never generate what are promised at the outset. And Governor, I think Governor Pritzker really hit the mark in not saying no, but saying, look, for there to be a conversation here. There needs to be some meaningful and reliable numbers uh, of revenue projections uh, different from what we have seen in the past to even open the discussion. Yeah, I I think you're right. And it's the ongoing revenue from the site that we have never gotten uh, from our investments in stadiums. Current the current ones and certainly not in the in the proposal unless you count the three card Monty game they're trying to pull. Reinsdorf says, "Give me a billion dollars and I'll pay off all the current debt and then keep the rest." You know, um, well, why don't we just take our money and pay off the debt? Why do we need him to pay off our debt? I don't I don't even understand that proposal. It's, it's extremely peculiar, margin. And if, if I could just add one more piece, Joe made me think of something um, in that last question. Uh, but when we talk about, um, you know, what value a team being in a city or a stadium being in the city means, right? And I, I've been very clear about the fact I love the fact that Chicago teams play their, their games in Chicago, and I want it to stay that way, um, you know, uh, under very smart circumstances or and very smart, you know, processes. Uh, but what I also uh, say is that I've been very critical of the Chicago Bears organization pre-Kevin Warren's arrival about the fact that, you know, we, we've had conversations about whether or not we're giving them more money. And I can point out uh, a dozen Chicago public league football programs who are sharing helmets. Um, now, listen, there's not a quid pro quo there, um, but if you're going to really invest in a city, uh, if you're going to really, really invest in a city and it's, it's young people, uh, you know, there needs to be, to me, some real uh, commitment to being a part of Chicago, not just using our name and not just using what I've been calling public housing uh, for these for these ball teams. So would that uh, be community based programs? I know NASCAR did a lot of those, the, by the way, um, but he, they had a lot of outreach into the community that was pretty impressive. Do you mean that kind of thing or something more well, substantial? Well, and I'm not saying that as part of. As, as, as part of these negotiations, I'm just saying let's look at the track record uh, for the hundred of years, hundreds of years that, um, well, the hundred years that the Bears have been here, and uh, however many years since the White Sox have been uh, Chicago teams. What has the commitment to the community been? And that should be part of what we look at when we look at whether or not um, they have had a, a true commitment to Chicago. 
Well, I would say one place they could start is Bridgeport. Uh, the last thing we need is an empty shell of a stadium across the street from a potentially an empty shell of a soldier field, um, basically across the Lakeshore Drive, DuSable Lakeshore Drive from each other. Um, they seem to have a, f- a flippant response to that question, like, oh, make it a soccer stadium, which apparently it's not suitable for. Um, and now the soccer teams want their own stadium and be, be part of the deal. It's become a pylon. But but what about Bridgeport? Why why would they leave there? And is not good for Bridgeport, right? I think one question is I, I think a, a, a different form of question: How good is it for Bridgeport, and in what particular ways? And, and, and certainly, as a matter of presence. Um, uh, it elevates Bridgeport, but the setup uh, of guaranteed um, rate park, which I have to check myself to not call it White Sox or Comiskey still, mm-hmm. but um, the, uh, the, the setup is one that actually isn't optimizing the draw to the park itself. It's surrounded by parking lots. There really isn't much um, uh, commercial activity um, that has been built out in the way of um, what are sort of the modern um, schemes for um, uh, urban um, stadiums. Um, and, you know, in some respect, you, you've used the word shell a number of times already, Marge. Mm-hmm. Um What we're talking about here is a sort of field of schemes. Build it and they will come. The problem is, is that it's, especially with baseball, it's not new people coming. Um, It is simply moving uh, some part of the commercial activity from Bridgeport to another area. It's certain that is certainly an underperforming area. It's an area with, uh, especially if you built out the infrastructure um, and, and, and you see the designs, you say it has more potential, um, but the potential that it has is immediately drawn down and back to um, the owners and of, of, of the, of, of the ballpark. And so it does have the feel of something of a shell game to it. And what we are left with is absolutely no prospect of leveraging guaranteed rate um, for its optimal revenue generating, uh, commerce generating impact. And maybe that's what we should be looking at first is, uh, as a comparative matter, what can we do with the existing park to make the surrounding area a greater draw that actually generates the sort of revenues that are being touted um, for the 78? Uh, that's a good point. And you have uh, emphasized to me in past conversations, Joe, the difference between gross and net uh, economic impact. That is, when they talk about the jobs and the millions of dollars that will be generated by the new uh, Sox Park, they have to subtract what already is being generated or compare it to the existing uh, economy. And in fact, if the future world means Nothing will be generated out of Bridgeport, uh, and they will generate millions out of the 78. That's not a net benefit for the city. I I love your Field of Schemes line. In fact, there's a book called Field of Schemes written by a guy named uh, Neil DeMoss. He says uh, he studied all kinds of stadium deals uh, over decades. His line is payback for taxpayers who invest in such stadiums is somewhere between absolutely nothing and extraordinarily little. 
which is h- how many ways do we have to say it? It's not a it's not a good deal for the taxpayers. Cam, I feel like you have um, been a bulwark in a lot of ways against uh, handouts for developments in our community, and I thank you for that. Um, but who else? Uh, we have the governor. H- how could the rest of us help support? this point of view because I haven't talked to any taxpayer who thinks our money should go to the stadiums. What, what should we be doing? I think making your, your voice heard, uh, people and communities and neighborhoods need to be very clear about what they expect in these conversations. I think Joe is right that governor Prisker hit the exact right note in that just saying completely no, but saying like, listen, let's have a conversation. Let's see some data. Let's be smart and prudent about this. I think it's the right way to go. Uh, I think this is a, a huge moment for Chicago uh, because I, I know that there are folks around the country who are looking at us to see what we do in this space, to see uh, what they're going to do when they are faced with this same situation. I think we saw just a few months ago in the uh, in the Washington, D.C. metro area, the, the, the DMV, um, as they're losing their teams to, to the state of Virginia, uh, and the state of Virginia wrote a pretty hefty check uh, to to bring those teams there. Um, But what does that really mean? And is that the right thing? Is that true fiscal responsibility? I think it it, it always is a better situation for us to say, let's talk about it than just to say absolutely yes or absolutely no. And when you talk about it and you get through uh, the numbers and and the data, I think it becomes very clear what needs to happen in these spaces. And so I would just say, continue to sound the alarm, talk to your neighbors, talk to your friends, talk to those folks have been elected to represent you uh, to make sure that your voice is heard in this conversation. And, Marge, uh, you also bring up a really good point. Um, this cannot be done behind closed doors. Whatever happens needs to be, needs to be very public-facing. Um, as, as both both you and Joe know, I uh, I um, did a stint with a, another baseball team in Chicago on the north side during a stadium renovation uh, negotiation for them, which was not publicly financed. And I spent a lot of time in the community in Lakeview talking to folks about what our plans were. And it was a very long and grueling process, but it was the right thing to do so that people were not left in the dark. These deals cannot be made in a, in a smoke-filled room in Springfield. And I'll be honest with you, I'll probably be in, in that smoke-filled room if it happens, but this needs to be very, very public. I hope you are. Uh, it makes us feel a little bit better uh, to know that you would be there. But, yeah, there shouldn't be this smoke-filled room. Um, that isn't the way to make these decisions. And I got to say, the city in the last mayor or two or three has fallen into a very uh, discouraging pattern of public input. Once the deal's done, uh, they present it and uh, have a town hall. Under Lightfoot, you could write your opinions or questions on a card and pass it up, and the person running from the administration running the meeting would decide whether to read it or whether to edit it as it went along. That's not public input. We should be talking all along. That, Marge, that, that, that's absolutely right. We have a larger problem um, with what participatory democracy really means. Um, and, and, and you're right. There's, we, we, this has become something of a an 11th hour check the box exercise um, that allows for a very, very limited channeled um, uh, amplification of voice 
that actually doesn't inform the discussion or the debate of the decisions, which quite often have already been baked. And so that, that's that's a that's a that's a big topic in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But to add to what Cam was 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 saying here, and and actually what both of you have have suggested. Um, in elevating the voice um, and in, 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 in making yourself heard and in organizing and communicating. And, and again, I, I, I'm not a hard no on this, but I'm a hard no without hard data, right, um, that is properly vetted and openly discussed. But it needs to be discussed in context. Um, the Chicago Public Schools project an enormous deficit uh, in the coming year and the years ahead. Our transit system faces a massive uh, fiscal cliff such that, you know, it's going to impel um, a conversation about the governance structure of our regional transit system. But the CTA is in crisis. The pension crisis hasn't gone away. Um, the city itself, um, uh, the new administration, projected a year out on the on the true backside of ARPA and COVID money, um, a, a city deficit, a budget deficit, um, well north of a billion dollars. And um, and none of that is talked about in the context of this sort of notion and this sort of idea that we're going to build something. It's like a dopamine hit at a time <laughs> when we're all scared, right? And so it feels yeah. good and everybody goes there. And uh, we have to bring the conversation into that holistic context. That's the pressure I was talking about, right, Cam, where it's like, can't let them go to Nashville, do whatever it takes. That used to be how it was under the old Jim Thompson days, but it shouldn't be the way it is now. But the pressure is immense, isn't it? The pressure is real, but we cannot succumb to it. And we have to be, once again, very smart and intentional. And Joe is right. Decisions like this made without context, without uh, transparency, and without looking at the totality of the circumstances based on hard data, um, really screws the people. Right? And if you don't believe me, when it shows over, we can uh, meet at the uh, Bally's Temporary Casino. And I'll show you how that works in real life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we in the South Loop dodged a bullet there, didn't we? Um, yeah. yeah. We uh, Two out of three of the so-called finalists were in our neighborhood, although one of them was a figment of somebody's imagination. That was never going to happen. At one central, but you know I could go off on that deep end, and I'm not going to. We're going to stick with the stadium but, but, talk. But actually, I think, Marge, mm. we, we we should go off on that a little bit. Be, not 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 for the not for the merits of the casino itself, but for the process. And yeah. what we know is, a decision was made effectively without public input. A decision was made actually driven by the information and the studies that were done by the interested parties rather than the city itself. The traffic study um, that was done was done after the approval, and it was done by Bally's itself, telling us no issue whatsoever, nothing to look at here. And what we're seeing is these these proposals aren't fully fleshed out and aren't run through the regulatory um, and governance traps such that we can have confidence that what is being put forward actually syncs up with what is feasible. And we saw the same, we saw a variant on that with Lincoln Yards. We saw a variant on that with, with, with NASCAR um, in the first go round. That is how we govern these days. And, you know, that's the space that the proponents 
um, the advocates for um, these stadiums are hoping to work within, that's really what needs to change is a full vetting, a front-end vetting that actually is in full context. And in public, because NASCAR is an interesting comparison, because when this mayor took over promising transparency and all the things that we uh, elected him for and faced with the option of renewing NASCAR, he got his own his own uh, economic impact study, but he had it done out of Choose Chicago, which has the vested interest in all things tourism. And when it came out, um, this is where we talked before about the net and gross benefit. They didn't compare it to other Fourth of July weekends. They just touted the hotel occupancy rate that they were responsible for for their weekend. But I don't know that it was significantly better than an average or a typical or even successful uh Fourth of July weekend, the city, because they didn't study that. That wasn't the kind of study that should be done. And you and I co-authored a, a letter to the editor that uh, was printed in the sometimes Cranes. I think Cranes. Yeah, Cranes. Thank you. <laughs> uh, suggesting that the inspector general should have done that study. If you want somebody impartial, that's somebody who does not answer to the mayor or the mayor's agenda. I don't know what the mayor's agenda is in this case of stadiums, but I think it focuses on his need for some kind of big win. Cam, does that make him a risk taker with our money? Well, so I, I haven't heard from the administration where they, where they are on this. Um, I think most of the conversations have been circled uh, centered around Springfield. Uh, but, you know, once again, I know that the governor has been very clear about this. The speaker has been clear. The Senate president has been clear and a number of us. Um, both in leadership and, and ranking file members have been very clear about where we are on this. Um, the city has to be a partner in these conversations as well, right? And I expect for them to, to, to do that. Uh, but we are, I think, a long way off before we can start talking about uh, you know, this in, in any kind of um, fruition type of manner. Uh, we've got still more questions than answers. There, There is one development this week that I thought was really interesting and promising coming from Don Harmon of all people because he's been one of the big supporters of One Central. Give them six and a half billion without questions. But when it comes to the stadiums, he's made a smart statement saying let them come together. Give us one deal. We don't want them competing against each other. We don't want to have to sort through the different interests of the different teams. We want one joint proposal. Cam, does that have some potential in Springfield? I think it may. Um, you know, it, that was brought up after we left uh, the Capitol, and so we we're mm-hmm. back this week. And I think I, we'll, we'll hear more this week once once we get under the dome. Things kind of change, and people begin to talk to each other, and, and ideas begin to flow through through the, through the, the, the chambers. Um, but I, I think it was smart to, to say that. I think it was smart to push uh, these teams to have conversations. Uh, because, you know, the, the Bears operating in a silo or the White Sox operating in a silo, I don't think it's good for for the taxpayers. Uh, and then, I, you know, I also think that, um, that, that Laura Ricketts and, and the, the, the Red Stars mm-hmm. have a strong point when they talk about diversity uh, and inclusion and making sure that women's sports are a part of the conversation, too, if we are going to at any point uh, reopen the ISLA bonding conversation. And so, uh, like I said, there's still more questions than answers, but I think it was a, a good move. Yeah, yeah. If you doubt the excitement of women's sports, uh, watch Caitlin Clark this afternoon, but keep your radio on. <laughs> keep your radio March, on. March, mm-hmm. 
can I add a couple of additional observations here? Um, um, we tend to talk about this from these things from the excite, the immediate excitement. But the fact of the matter is, is to the extent that there is benefit to be had, it's out. It's it's in the out years. It's way downstream. We're talking years in advance. One, two. In the context of the Bears, we're talking about the lakefront. We're talking about the south parking, the the south parking lot of Soldier Field right now. Um, and um, I know we're kind of ahistorical in our culture, mm-hmm. um, but um, the Lucas Museum wasn't that long ago, and we do have not merely a tradition but a law that says um, we don't do things on the lakefront, um, and that needs to be reckoned with. And um, uh, and 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 I and, and the invocation of of the Ricketts and the Red Stars um, that takes us back to the larger context, right? What are the pillars of a healthy city? What are the essential pillars that make Chicago, Chicago? We should put it in that context, not in the context of a bid by um, uh, somebody or somebody's who've already taken us for something of a ride a generation ago, um, uh, who are the ones who are actually formulating what our options are. We, the governments, should be formulating what the parameters are and what the requirements are. And too often, we're simply following what's been put on the table mm-hmm. by um, the business interests, the billionaires here. What is it that we want? What is it that we need? 2037 is the, 200, is the bicentennial of Chicago. What do we want our city to be? We don't want it to be a city where we've taken on another half billion to billion dollars in debt that results in our not being able to actually provide for the true pillars, the schools, the, tran- the transportation, um, uh, and all sorts of other things. The mi- you know the migrant crisis is a reflection of really um, the challenges that we're, we're leaning into the question of, of homelessness with the real estate transfer tax. And stop about stop and think about that. You know, uh, this week. Um, I read World Business Chicago um, touted Chicago as the most attractive business investment city in the U.S. At the same time that we have the Building Owner Management Association, BOMA, challenging the real estate transfer tax referendum, saying both the commercial real estate market and downtown business activity are in crisis. Um, While the transit system is acknowledging that we do face a fiscal cliff, and while we're talking about tax breaks, for billionaires, we're at the same time saying we need to triple the real estate transfer tax to fund our homelessness problem. These things don't add up to a a single vision. We're at war with ourselves in our rhetoric, and we are not coordinated in what it is that we want our city to be. That would be a fascinating citywide conversation that has never really happened. Um, and not in a meaningful way, the way we talk about public input and how it's been handled lately. But I'm not even sure what that overall vision is for the current administration, um, although pieces of it, several pieces of it, I think, have emerged in the last couple of weeks. But you're right about the uh, transfer tax. We on the left like to call the mansion tax, although I know um, there's arguments against that phrase, but I don't know if I agree with them. <laughs> but but here we are fighting over whether it's a good idea uh, to raise the rates of sales of 
large properties um, because we are so desperate for money. And then we say, yeah, but we could probably give a billion dollars, you know, uh, to the team owners. I, you're right. It's incongruous. I just don't understand uh, how we could have both conversations at the same time. Um, but, Cam, that's the nature of government, isn't it? it uh, unfortunately, it is. Uh, but, you know, Joe so just gave me a, a great idea if we think through this. Um, what, what would Chicagoans say in, in a true participatory government type of way? What would Chicagoans say that they that they wanted out of this space? I, I think about what some of the the alders do um, with their their menu money. I know Andre Vasquez does this in the forty and four. But when they ask people how how, how should we spend this, if we said we had two billion dollars and we can either save transit or build stadiums or you know make sure CPS is fully funded, uh, where do where do you put your money? Um, and I would love to hear what Chicagoans would say. I've got an idea that it would not be um, you know around some of these conversations we're having right now. Yeah, I'd like to see ranked choice voting on that poll. I think that would be fascinating for sure. Yeah. You know, years ago, I used to run the League of Chicago Theaters, and I would complain to television stations that didn't give coverage to live theater in Chicago. Like, why don't we have a week in review or some kind kind of uh, regular segment about the arts in Chicago? You do it for sports, and they're... A minority of when you look at studies of who follow sports that closely, there aren't any more of them necessarily. And the woman who was running Channel 7 at the time said to me, yeah, but they're really loud when you cut back. She said, that's why we put it at the end of the newscast, because we have such a small audience for it, relatively speaking. But if we cut it out, they'd complain we'd have to put it back. And I think that's kind of the phenomenon we're looking at now. We do want to know what some of our listeners think about this. And if you want to join us, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, though, we take your calls if you're so inclined, 773-763-9278. Or if you like the fancy version, 773-763-WCPT. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Marge Halperin here for Ed, off enjoying the day, uh, I hope, with his family and otherwise. We could have had a segment on the crazy weather, maybe next time. It's like you love the sunshine, but you know this is not a good thing, so how do you totally let yourself enjoy it? That's us, the bleeding heart liberals, right? <laughs> I, I was told I was told Tom Skilling pushed all the buttons before he walked out the, the office last week. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he did. He had a wild final day, though, didn't he? <laughs> Yeah, well, we'll see. I'll bet he comes back for the eclipse. I'm predicting we'll we'll see him in and out as the weather uh, continues to be wacky. Um, But speaking of wacky... That's an interesting interesting observation there, uh, Marge. Um, You know, one of the the sort of the meta issues that we need to deal with is the impact of climate change. Chicago is going to be a climate haven, Mm -hmm. but the weather's getting warmer. Are we thinking about the warmer weather when we're talking thinking about the design of the stadium of uh, for the White Sox? Um, in places like Arizona, we have retractable roofs because it's too hot to play baseball in the, in the heart of the summer. What uh-huh. is Chicago going to be like in 15 years? And are we planning for that, even uh-huh. in talking about these new stadiums? Oh, well, given their track record in 15 years, they'll want another one anyway. 
<laughs> but I but I think that you had a smarter comment uh, than that would be. But yeah, I I think in you know what about the Bears? We could build them a fancy new uh, stadium, but Bears weather is coming to an end, uh, and whatever advantage they have in that kind of weather uh, is going to slip away. They can't afford to lose any advantage. But yeah, a uh, good point. We aren't planning for the future, and when we talk about. Uh, accommodating traffic. They have 4,000 parking places, which obviously is a pretty small number for a stadium of that size. On the other hand, in the future, will fewer people be driving? Is that smart planning? Maybe. um, Or maybe it's in the direction of smart planning, and they ought to up it somewhat uh, because a lot of people still want to drive here uh, from the suburbs. If you're in the city, it's a quick, short walk from the train station. But otherwise, um, what is the right number of parking spaces? What is the right accommodation for Roosevelt Road, which is already jammed when there's a Bears game? And if we're going to have 80 uh, baseball games or whatever the number is, um, what's going to happen to traffic in and out of Lakeshore Drive uh, and all the highways come together uh, on Roosevelt? So I'm not seeing that kind of thoughtful traffic or planning for cars in general. Uh, out of either of those proposals, actually. Uh, we All asked, of which suggest yeah. that we just slow down. We should just put the brakes on. Since we're in, we're talking cars, we should just put the brakes on and be more deliberate and deliberative about what it is we're doing. That's right. And take over the steering wheel if we want to continue the analogy. Instead of letting the state, the team owners drive, uh, we should be in the driver's seat, uh, the taxpayers and our representatives, and deciding what our priorities are and challenging the team owners to meet them, uh, to which there are probably ways to go. We got a text from Beth in Michigan suggesting uh, that we that we own the stadium and then get all the revenue going even farther than my statement earlier, pay the GM tied to performance and uh, pay the team contracts, but don't don't let them have the revenue. I, that's probably not going to happen. Let's say, but sure. It's sports sports impact bonding. Yeah, why not? We have Steve on the line from Gold Coast, a longtime friend of the show, who has some comments about that. Steve, what are you thinking? Yeah, so you've already touched on a couple of points that I wanted to make. So it's important to distinguish the the different sorts of sports. So when it comes to the NFL, they're sort of leaps and bounds of everybody else. It's often said that basketball, baseball, hockey, everything else, that's what we do in between football seasons. Uh, you know, the NFL said owns a day of the week. That, that's how important they are in American society. So the idea that anyone should subsidize a stadium for them is ridiculous. They have managed to expand the number of games, expand the number of franchises, and, and still remain at record high profits. I mean, nobody closes down an NFL franchise. Now, uh, on the other hand, you know. Oh, we lost him. He'll probably be back. Uh, oh. He's back promptly. I think he has us on speed dial. Go ahead. Go ahead, Steve. Yes. So, 
and, and, and this idea that somehow, you know, what we need to do is to build a stadium. So let's just go backwards because you were just talking about this. We renovated Soldier Field, destroyed this mm-hmm. wonderful piece of architecture in order to build a football stadium where at the time only 16 games are played in an NFL season, half of which are played possibly there. So we built a stadium for eight days out of the year. And because it's in Chicago, an open-air stadium, what else are you going to use it for except, uh, you know, in the summer months for perhaps a concert here or there? And even there, you're limited. So, uh, you know, stop allowing these people to sell you on things like the Olympics or stadiums or whatnot because it simply doesn't have the return that they promise. I mean, when was the last time that somebody said, hey, you know, we got the Olympics 10 years later. Hey, look at what it generated for us. No, it doesn't happen. And the same thing with regard to these stadiums. These are multi-billion dollar entities. Let them pay their own way. Yeah. And we know, uh, thanks for those comments, Steve. Uh, glad that you called us uh, this afternoon. And what what that reminds me of is they have money and they could put money into the, the thinking about Reinsdorf for the moment. He has the money, but where he's putting his money is uh, by the United Center. He's buying up land all around there. He wants to create uh, what all stadiums want now, the big entertainment district uh, concept. And he's willing to pay for that. Uh, but he has said publicly that his uh, children do not want to own the Sox anymore. So he's 88, I believe, uh, up there, uh, certainly too old to be president, right? Um, but he uh, he doesn't have endless time to be running the socks. He likes it. He's going to own it as long as he's around. When he's gone, he says his family will sell the socks. So he's putting his money into the United Center where his family has lasting interest, if for no other reason than because his grandson married Rocky Wirtz's granddaughter. And so the next generation is very interested in the United Center, but not in the socks. So here's the perfect deal, right? Get taxpayers to enhance the value of the team, because he doesn't want to put his money into high salaries either, um, but make the location a destination at our expense. And then when his family sells the socks, they'll make more money. What could be a more outrageous, gutsy proposal? And yet it's being considered. Cam, what is happening here? You think about all the different kind of levers and the tentacles of the connectivity here. Um, but, but Steve, Steve makes a very, very good point that I think we can't skip over. Um, and I'm going to go a step further. Not only does the NFL, uh, have they found a data, a way to own one day of the week, um, which used to be God's day, um, way back in the day, right? But now they, they bought that one. Uh, but they, the NFL has found a way to own almost an entire calendar year. Um, minus a couple of weeks in March for March Madness, minus um, the last weeks of October, early weeks of November for uh, the uh, the World Series, um, and then a week in June for the NBA Finals. Other than that, like this is literally we're we're, we're here in February, March, and most most of the most of the sports coverage this week was about the NFL Combine. Right, football is a long way away, but we're talking about football all year long. It's a fifteen billion dollar entity, uh, and, and I would say that. Part of this stadium hunger games that we find ourselves in is really a result of the NFL uh, and them telling teams that a 20-year-old stadium is too old. And if you get a, a new one, then I'll give you a Super Bowl. Um, the NFL has created this, and, and much to the chagrin of their fans who are, uh, you know, 
blue collar folks, middle middle class America, uh, who often can't even afford to go to an NFL game. The NFL needs to be also uh, on the hook for this. So if, if, if we're going to keep the Bears in Chicago, which I hope we do, which I, I think that we should. The NFL has to have a real conversation about what it's worth to them as well. They've got to come to the table for some money. Yeah, it's easy to say, and they've been refusing. They had enough money to buy uh, a lot of land in Arlington Heights without checking the potential tax bill. Uh, not sure who's responsible for that, how they could be surprised by property taxes. We all know when we make a purchase of a home or any other kind of property that you got to see what your ongoing expenses will be. Seem to surprise them. Um, but they think they have more leverage. I don't know. Uh, we have Peter on the line uh, who wants to talk some about stadiums and not too happy with how the politicians have handled it. Peter, what are you thinking? Good afternoon. Well, look, it's a catch-22. The teams come in and say, we're going to generate all this income to the neighborhoods. Yes, they do. But when you have politicians who don't know their heads from their behinds cutting these deals, they look at, I got to get it done regardless of what is in it for the taxpayer. It's like the guy who goes out and brags about their sales. I had record sales, record sales, but yet I only made a quarter on the product and I'm losing money. But he thinks he's doing great because he's selling. Same with these politicians. They, like you mentioned about NASCAR, $2 per ticket, and they sell them as high as, I think you said $3,000. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these guys have got to know business and know how to cut deals and know how to bring home the bacon, and they don't care. All they want to be able to do is say, see what I did for you when it comes time for election. And, you know, it's like with uh, Donald Trump when he made the, uh, the Boeings and all the other planes. He went to him and said, you know what, I'm not going to accept these numbers because they're overinflated. And Boeing came back and said, oh, okay, and they recut their numbers. And literally hundreds of millions of dollars were saved. How ironic. We cared about the price. <laughs> How well, ironic when you yeah, consider he's maybe going to jail for overinflating the value well, of his own what, property. I, <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not worried about that, and I didn't bring it up for that purpose. No, I know. Uh, the, point is, the point is he was a businessman. He knew what was going on. He knew that these guys were taking advantage of government. And it's the same thing with these stadium, stadium owners. They understand they can say to the mayor, to the aldermen, hey, I'm going to bring all this money into your district. So they cut the deal at any cost just to make sure they can say to the voter, look what I did for you. That's well, the problem. I'm as with you on that second half for sure. Uh, and I think on the one hand, what's wrong with running on the basis of what you did for me? And that's why I would reelect you. This idea that you need a businessman in government, I strongly disagree. Uh, I think Trump has given us plenty of evidence why that wasn't a good idea. But also, government is not a business. Government is a different kind of entity. And I think Cam's comments have really illuminated how different it is when you have these different factions. And I'd give you a chance to respond, Cam. And Mark, I'll also say that there there is something I think that is very salient in, 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 in that last caller's um, comments. And it really, once again, underscores 
what Joe was saying about are we planning for the future? What does this mean, not just for today, but for tomorrow? Um, in 2000 and 2001, during the last Bears renovation conversation, I actually uh, was a 17-year-old high school student, football player at Morgan Park High School. Uh, and my my uh, weekend job was as a guest service representative, so also done as an usher at Soldier Field. Um, I watched, uh, as I left the stadium uh, in 2001 after the Bears lost to the Philadelphia Eagles that year, uh, I watched the first wrecking ball begin to knock down um, the inside of Soldier Field to to, to re- renovate it. Uh, and I remember then thinking, what was this costing people? Um, now, you know, 20 years later, 20-some years later, uh, I'm in a different position, not a 17-year-old anymore, uh, but being in a position to, to look at this deal and what a future deal will look like and seeing that that deal, uh, we still are on the hook for $500 million, a half billion dollars worth of uh, debt uh, on that building. Uh, so obviously we weren't thinking about the future when we did that. And so once again, to Joe's point, this has to be future focused. This can't, we can't be stuck in this moment and not think about what's next. Yes. And that's a, I, I hate to end the conversation, but that's a pretty good place to end it though. I will give you Joe one last word if you would like. The, I totally agree with Cam. There, there is there is one antidote to this last bit of conversation with the caller's points, um, uh, and I understand the frustration um, with politicians um, and the politics versus the business. Um, we talked about participatory democracy. We talked about full process. You know what these things generally don't involve? They don't involve the owners having to come and testify at a legislative hearing and answer all of the issues and the questions that we are engaging. They they drop something into the middle of our midst and we debate it like crazy and they stay behind closed doors. I doubt we're going to see the McCaskies and I doubt we're going to see Jerry Reinsdorf sitting before a legislative committee asking all of these questions. That is actually what should be going on. Business, you want to come to the political realm to ask for political, essentially political legislative benefits, then step in and have a conversation that we can all engage and from all of the different perspectives. Um, unfortunately, that's not the way we go about this. Wow. Could be. I love that idea. And we could all watch it on TV. Cam, maybe you can help make that happen. Mention it in your closed door uh, the next time you're in the smoke-filled room. Maybe you can I mention it. I certainly will. I will. <laughs> well, my, my thanks to our amazing guests on this topic. I have a feeling we'll be talking about this for a while. Joe Ferguson, the president of the Civic Federation. Cam Buckner, representative of the 26th District in the state of Illinois. And um, I'm Marge Halpern. And for Ed, and we'll have... A discussion about city politics that I think is going to segue very nicely when Greg Pratt joins us in just a couple minutes. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Now you're listening to Marge Halperin, uh, a substitute. I'm going to say a poor substitute. I'm not going to evaluate what kind of substitute I am. You, You can evaluate that if you want to call in and talk to us. We're happy to 
talk to you as well about our topics of the day, 773-763-9278. We were mostly done talking about stadiums, so it might come up as we talk about city politics, which with my next guest, uh, Greg Pratt who's a reporter for the Chicago Tribune, currently doing investigative uh, long-form research and pieces, but coming off a pretty rough stint as City Hall reporter under a pretty rough administration. And uh, what does he have to show for it? Greg Pratt has a book coming out uh, April 2nd. You can pre-order it on Amazon or, uh, better yet, at your local independent bookstore and uh, it's called city up for grabs the city is up for grabs how chicago mayor Lori lightfoot led and lost a city in crisis welcome greg thank you very much for having me and i don't know what kind of uh, substitute you are but i'm hoping to be an adequate guest oh i'm Pretty sure you will be. I'm counting on it. <laughs> you and I have spent hours talking about these issues. I don't think we're going to have any trouble filling the next 30 minutes. I I want to start by asking you if you were involved in choosing the cover of your book, because the photo of Lori Lightfoot glaring in, I happen to see, from the podium in the uh, city council chambers, she's looking toward the uh, press box. Was she looking at you? Yes, I was in the room, but she wasn't. She wasn't angry at me in that particular instance. She was just uh, upset. She had just fired police superintendent Eddie Johnson, and was just glaring at the questions and at the cameras. And she had she uh, literally fired him, and then went right into the press room to make the announcement that that she had fired Superintendent Johnson. And what I like about the photo is is she's she's very focused. She she is clearly upset. She's kind of white knuckling the lectern. <laughs> and it, it to me it kind of represents a lot of her tenure where, you know, very, very heated about some important issues and and just trying to hang on. Yeah. Well she hung on, but only for one term. Uh I I'm interested also, I, the description of the book, This Must Be What's on the Jacket, um, talks about her as being at the center of quite a storm. I mean, uh, she came on as the first black woman to run this city and uh, the second female mayor of the city. It wasn't so easy for Jane Byrne either. And both of them had a whole lot of self-inflicted wounds, I would say, in that Imagine that's a, a short capsule of the book. Uh, when you look at it, it says uh, you have a comprehensive behind-the-scenes look at the tumultuous single term and the chaos that roiled the city. Uh, give us the short version. What what made it such chaos? Certainly, COVID, she came out of the box with pretty strong control, but fell apart at the end, um, fell apart in a lot of ways. What's your take on this chaos that she presided over? There's the there's the roiling of the political system, the chaos in the political system where Ron Emanuel, who is a very big dog, uh, not literally a big dog, he's a very small dog, but but uh, <laughs> but who is a very very big presence in politics in Chicago and, and nationally, he steps down. Ed Burke, who had been the finance committee chairman. Uh, off and on for decades, and by the, by this point for decades, is leaving that post 
you have a lot of the old veterans in Chicago City Council going down voluntarily or involuntarily. So the whole the whole political uh, structure of the city of Chicago is literally up for grabs in terms of who is going to lead the city. And then you end up if so there's there's the first part and then she ends up the beneficiary of of the corruption charges against Ed Burke because she's the only one not connected to him and she has personally prosecuted a corrupt alderman. So she rides that wave and she comes into office and the job is the job is hard under normal circumstances because you have a city of almost three million people uh, and a lot of change and disruption, a lot of uh, institutionalized racism, and it gets accelerated by the civil unrest across the country and in Chicago and by COVID and by the wild card in Chicago of a, of a burgeoning political movement led by the Chicago Teachers Union. So there's just all of these factors that she's at the center of and that she is trying and ultimately failing to navigate. And then she brings to it some personal strengths uh, as a lawyer and um, smart person. I don't I think she's a great degree of intelligence, maybe not so much emotional intelligence, uh, which might have been her shortcoming. Uh, that got her in the most trouble, I guess. Um, but you you argue, at least in the jacket, because, you know, I don't have the book yet, um, <laughs> that uh, she is uh, partially responsible. Uh, the result, some of the problems it says here in the jacket, are the result of Lightfoot's poor leadership at City Hall, City Hall a story that hasn't been told in full until now. Um, so what are, like, the top three uh, unforced errors, would you say? You know, uh, the biggest is is just an absolute refusal to build relationships. And, you know, Alderman Gil Villegas comes into her early on. He's her floor leader. And he tells her that she should have breakfast with all of the aldermen and invite the local state rep and state senator, too. And Mayor Lightfoot just doesn't have the time for that. And and more more accurately, she doesn't have the interest for that. Of, of over the next few months, I'm going to do a, a tour. You know, she, she met with Ivanka Trump in the White House during the transition before she had met with most of the city's aldermen. And, you know, that, that, that's just a, that just really represents the lack of relationships building that she had to do. She refused to acknowledge errors when it came to very big issues like the police department. She brought in a leader from out of town, David Brown, Mm -hmm. who had an impressive life story and had some potential, uh, but he was a failure as a Chicago police superintendent. And it was pretty clear after about a year, year and year and a half that he was a failure and she kept them for three years. Um, and, you know, the, the crime fighting, you know, those those parts of her agenda uh, really struggled. She struggled to deal with rising crime and she struggled to articulate what was happening. And then they sort of fell off on the consent decree, too, because the the department just wasn't led, wasn't properly engaged. So the city missed out on serious reform opportunities. And so the third thing is... 
I know a lot of listeners here are pro elected school board, and that's fine. Um, there's, there's, you know, that's 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 a that's a fully legitimate point of view. Mayor Lightfoot campaigned on an elected school board, and then. Uh, ended up being against an elected school board, but she never wanted to acknowledge that. So she ended up uh, giving up the, she was a terrible negotiator, you know, and you saw that with the strikes and you see that with mm-hmm. the elected school board where she, she lost control of the school board because she just didn't want to acknowledge that, Hey, listen, let's work with a hybrid board, which is what I want. So she, she let the CTU take all the oxygen out of the room and it was over for her and she wasn't able to to defend herself and to to retain control of the schools. And how ironic the CTU's candidate, Brandon Johnson, now kind of shares her view uh, that it's too much too fast to get to a totally elected school board. Now he's got to live with it or not. We'll see. I would have added to that list her own... Uh, personality, the nature of her personality has been to be overly defensive and thin-skinned. And you mentioned Rahm earlier. Say what you will about him, but he could take it. Um, He could dish it out, but he could take it also. And he uh, didn't mind a self-effacing conversation uh, about his shortcomings, unless maybe it was about Laquan McDonald and he wouldn't have it. Uh, But in other cases, he did. Uh, from time to time, and I think people found that uh, maybe endearing is too strong a word to use for Ron, but I think people accepted that and liked to see um, that kind of personality come through. Uh, but Lightfoot didn't like to admit a mistake. She didn't like to be criticized, which is a pretty rough uh, uh, standard to try to set as a leading politician in the city. How much did that hurt her, do you think? It's everything. It's absolutely everything for her. If if you could have just um, not alienated everybody at different moments where, you know, if somebody has, has a critique of what's happening in the city, one of her go-to lines was that they need to educate themselves. They need to get the facts. And, you know, most of the people that she's responding to are pretty well educated. And so it's just insulting and unnecessary for for no reason whatsoever. And one of the things that I that I talk about in the book and that, that is a real lesson learned is that she came up as a federal prosecutor. And when you're a federal prosecutor, uh, you win all of your fights because you are the biggest dog and you, you can be a bully as a prosecutor. Most prosecutors, um, especially in a courtroom, are bullies because they have the upper hand on on you in just about every way, especially the feds. And she could never adapt from from prosecutor, from pointing the finger and from identifying the problem and saying you're the problem. To we have to work together. And I don't I don't want to make it all a a referendum on a, on her and CTU. Although you know that is that that ends up being the big match for her and the match that she loses. But she doesn't. Um, she ends up losing the argument with CTU because she's approaching them like she's putting them on trial and prosecuting them, but they're a union that you have to work with. And, and it's just, the approach doesn't work. And that, that prosecutor approach just is what she took to everything. And every problem is not 
a nail, even if you are a hammer. Yeah. And yet, well, I wish she had been more of a bully with NASCAR. We had a long conversation about stadiums uh, in our <laughs> first hour, and that would have been a place to be a prosecutor and demand more. But she didn't. She didn't seem to pay any attention uh, and let her staff negotiate a bad deal. So well, she, she thinks it was a good deal. <laughs> Obviously, so, she doesn't you know, live in my neighborhood, but also, it's, you think she thinks that was a good deal, huh? Uh, no, no question about it. I'm sure. I'm sure that in, in she would feel that there's, you know, maybe we could have done this better or that better. But from her perspective, we brought a bunch of eyeballs to the city of Chicago that otherwise don't don't see anything about Chicago except for what's on Fox News, and that's that's the lens through which she views it. Yeah, and it had to be on the 4th of July weekend when there already are a lot of eyes on Chicago. And I don't mean to sound like just because I live near there I didn't want to, but actually uh, it, it was enjoyable. I, there were some aspects of it that I liked, but doing it on the 4th of July weekend uh, is what makes me so angry and which such, with such pitiful return compared to other great deals, Lollapalooza and otherwise, uh, that happened downtown. I just think as taxpayer, we should get more uh, for every single penny that is spent on our behalf, um, which is sort of the nature of the last hour of conversation. But that's definitely where I will always stand. Um, a good deal, not good enough, probably. Um, she felt blindsided in the end, don't you think? She's like, you know, the play the race card, the lesbian woman thing, um, kind of clutching for reasons. But the root of that, I think, is that she just thinks she was a terrific mayor. And how can you doubt her? Isn't that kind of her exit speech that she didn't give? Yeah, I, I think I think it's I think um, I think she really struggles with self-awareness and taking responsibility. I think that she really believes that she is the smartest, the toughest, the fairest, the funniest and the best looking person who walks into any room. And. <laughs> And really struggles with that being challenged or criticized, uh, much to her detriment, because she is she is a very intelligent woman. And she is a very tough woman, and yes. she she has real strengths. But she she just doesn't she just doesn't understand how to uh, separate legitimate criticism from illegitimate criticism, and she doesn't understand how to engage in politics and it's it's one of those things and and you know this as someone who has been married uh who is married and has been married for some time uh you can be right or you can be married right you cannot be right in every argument that you have even if you are right in every argument that you have there's a certain amount of give that that relationships take and there's and, and that's absolutely true in politics and she doesn't have any give whatsoever yeah and and you know, I've had this I've had the, a version of this discussion with a lot of political leaders in my tenure working in government and consulting and otherwise um where they don't want to be bothered by public process. It'll take time. We already have such a great deal or policy or legislation whatever it is that we don't need to we don't want to slow it down with public hearings, you know. And I would say repeatedly that even if you're right about that, and you might be, and it comes out the exact same proposal as it was going in, people will feel better about it because they had a say and they'll feel some ownership. And, of course, it's never the same. It's always better because public opinion has a perspective the mayor can't 
on her or his own. So it's always better if you step back and let others speak up and have some ownership. That's coalition building, which she was, um, maybe that's her number one her one number one problem, and you sort of articulated that earlier, right? She didn't want a coalition. She just wants you to sit down and do what she said. That's right. There's a uh, she made her staff go Christmas caroling in 2018 when she was running for office, and it had been a really tough time. <laughs> and you know they had just beaten the they had just beaten off the challenge from from Tony Preckwinkle to their petition signatures, and. One of her and she wants to go Christmas caroling with them to celebrate, and one of her staffers really doesn't want to do it because they don't—they're not into Christmas carols. And she says, "Sometimes you just have to do what the boss wants you to do." And that—that—that's true. Wow. But that was her attitude all the time. Huh. That's a nugget from the book. Wow! Not just sometimes, all the time. You're supposed to do what the boss wants you to do. It, it, <laughs> it's not easy challenging the boss when the boss sits in the fifth floor of city hall. I can speak from experience, and uh, but if you can't speak truth to power, what are you doing there? You know, and if you can't hear it, what are you doing in a seat of power? I think um, we're seeing nationally a refusal to hear uh, criticism is hurting the president right now. It needs to, you need to hear it and absorb it and do something about it when you can and face it when you can't. Because one, one of the things about being in power, sometimes you say this, this is the best we're, we can do. We, you know, we wish we could move these mountains, but not right away. Um, and, and I think the public appreciates that kind of honesty. But we didn't hear that from her very often, did we? No, think about think about her closing her first ad when she ran for re-election was they say that I take things too personal. They say that mm-hmm. I fight too much. They're right. I fight for you. And you know, that that just wasn't gonna work because people didn't feel people felt like she was fighting just to fight. Uh they felt that she was just punching anybody she could punch because it's what she likes to do. And so she really needed to acknowledge every once in a while that she did something wrong. You know, one of my favorite examples mm-hmm. is uh, an alderman, Derek Curtis, accidentally shoots himself in the hand. He's a firearm <laughs> safety instructor, which uh, imagine the irony of that. And she doesn't call him. He's one of her friends. And she doesn't call him to say, I'm sorry, to say, hey, buddy, you know, I, I see you got a little boo-boo. How you doing? Mm. And she doesn't do it. He complains in public. And so she sends him a series of mocking text messages. She calls him. He doesn't pick up. And she sends him a series of mocking text messages of, I just called you. Where are you? She sends one. She says, gee, it's morning and you still haven't called. I wonder why. And it's just, it's just you know, unnecessary. What a use of her time. I'm just shocked. Like, why bother? But that's that's the pettiness. Interesting about that ad, though. That could have worked. You know, double down on your faults is not a bad strategy. That's the self-effacing uh, issue that I mentioned earlier that I thought Rom did pretty successfully. Um, but she, there was, it was disingenuous the way she spun it. The thing, uh, as someone who has had a career spinning various uh, public issues, it's gotta, it's gotta actually have the advantage of being true. You have to, you have to feel legitimately what you're saying. And she had to know that was not how it was perceived, and that wasn't 
what she was actually doing. She's fighting for her own ego most of the time. It's a disappointment, uh, especially, let's talk about COVID for just a minute, because I know you don't have the full hour today, and I want to be sure to cover that, because I thought with uh, Allison Arwady, she came out pretty strong. Uh, they did their joint press conferences or st- updates every day. Compare those to what Trump was doing, y- you know, the, the, his ridiculous ramblings and drink bleach or whatever his advice was. We felt a lot of confidence in how the city was being run. And then what happened? How did, how did she fritter that away? You know, COVID is one of the interesting chapters for me, and it's one of the interesting things in retrospect where, you know, the the governor and the mayor did not agree about COVID. She did not want to close stuff down, certainly not at the pace that he was doing it. And she was against almost all of the things that he ended up doing. And she was, she, but um, especially in March and April of 2020, she was very, she, she ended up standing with him at these press conferences because she thought, and I think this is, this is to her credit, that we didn't need Illinois to be like New York where Governor uh, Cuomo and, and Mayor de, Bla, de Blasio, uh, or de Blas, I like to think of them, um, uh-huh. were, were fighting every day. And and fighting publicly, and they were fighting like cats and dogs. And she was against a lot of those mitigations, but she ended up getting a lot of credit for for you know the tough response and the strong response because people organically on the internet started to create the memes of her standing there, mm-hmm. you know, with yes. the with the with the suit and the and the folder, and people people had fun with it, and it created an image. That wasn't really reality, but that uh, was was you know still people people think back on her and COVID, and they generally have positive associations, even though she wasn't the one driving the bus on that. Governor Pritzker was, and the downside of that to tie it back to her reelection and to everything else is that. She thought that, oh, you know, these memes and, and these memes show that people like me. They like my authenticity. They like this. So they started playing with, with a lot of cutesy commercials and cutesy imagery, imagery like mm-hmm. her re-election ad where you have two couch potatoes playing the video game. And then it flips to her and she's like, I can't play. Busy. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm busy. And she, like, bites the lip and... And it was too cute for a serious thing, but but they learned the wrong lesson from from these things, which is when people are having fun with you in a tongue-in-cheek way, that doesn't mean you get to come in and say, hello, my fellow cool kids, because it, it just didn't work. I mean, she was, she was always better off just trying to be authentic. But COVID is interesting because of... of there was a lot of conflict between her and the governor that they that they tried to to keep under wraps. Did it relate to underserved communities? Because in my mind, that's how it unraveled. Here she is, uh, you know, the first black woman mayor. And then it turns out the discrepancies that always existed continue to exist. Only people are dying because of it. It was a, it's shocking to me that she didn't understand that was going to happen in advance. And I think that's largely why Allison already lost her job under the current mayor. Um, 
she promised all along uh, emphasis on the underinvested communities, and where it really mattered, she didn't do it. Yeah, and I think I think broadly that's fair. I actually think on the on COVID, one of the things I give her good marks on personally is that they made a lot of effort to get black and brown people vaccinated. And there was a school of thought when the vaccine was coming out that, you know, give it to as many people as want it, no matter if they're if they're rich, if they're white, if they're black, if they're poor, if they want it, just give it to them. And let's let's get the raw numbers out and up as much as possible, which has some validity to it. But she and Arwadi were concerned about a lot of black and brown people aren't going to take this willingly because they're they're concerned about the, you know some of the misinformation that's out there and some of the mm-hmm. history of of experiments and mistrust of science and so they really worked hard to to get those numbers up and I, I genuinely believe that Dr. Arwadi and Mayor Lightfoot saved saved a lot of lives there with with their efforts so that that's actually something I give her I think she deserves uh, real credit for. My impression is she didn't do that from the start, that she was playing catch-up when the numbers started coming out. Maybe maybe that's not an accurate impression. Well, I think I think that is true in the beginning and pre-vaccine, but when mm-hmm. it came to, to distribution of the vaccine, when it came to the beginning of COVID, she was concerned about the economic impacts and she was concerned about schools and, and you know... Um, Actually, Tony Preckwinkle was also concerned about schools when it comes to, you know, if we if we take kids out of schools, you know, they're they're going to suffer with their learning and there's going to be increases in violence. And so um, they they both kind of shared that concern, although they're obviously an odd couple. <laughs> Sneed would say that don't invite them item. But yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I. And I wasn't wrong to be concerned about schools. And you already talked about her approach to the elected school board. But otherwise, I don't think she made a lot of headway uh, on public education. Do you? No, I don't. I don't think I don't think she had a clear vision of what she Mm -hmm. actually wanted from the schools one way or or another, which is one of the lessons for people who want to take elected offices is your vision cannot just be happy students learning good things for big brains, you know, because that's good. I mean, we want happy students with big brains learning things and and having a safe environment, but what does that look like? You know, if it's, if you're talking to Paul Vallis, um, it means close down schools that aren't working. It means open up newer schools. It means be tougher on the teachers and hold them responsible for results. And you can... Uh, you know, I'm not advocating and privatize as many schools as you can. Don't leave that out because he was a charter guy. Yeah, um, you know, uh, these schools don't work. Let's let's uh, let's uh, find alternatives in the private system. And you know, uh, you may disagree with those views, and your listeners may. I'm, I'm not advocating for them, like I said, or against them. Uh, but that's a clear vision, and Mayor Lightfoot did not have a clear vision, and so. Um, the strongest, the strongest legacy uh, on schools is just kind of being a transition, uh, losing the school board fight, and um, you know, on a, I guess it, depending on your view, positive or negative, she did set the precedent in 2022 once we had the vaccine that we would not be closing down schools, 
over COVID, you know, uh, mm-hmm. we were dealing with Omicron and the union walked out in January 2022. We'd had the vaccine for like 10 months and Lori said no. And it was very closely watched across the country because a lot of, um, you know, a lot of unions and school districts were were seeing what's going to happen in Chicago because it's a. Uh, you know, as, as human beings, you know, we, we do do a monkey see, monkey do. And and so if Chicago if Chicago school district closes, uh, other school districts would have closed over Omicron, uh, big districts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they did not close. And so she won that fight. And she would say that that was a positive. But that's not really that's not really part of a, a broader agenda. That's that's leading on one specific thing. And, and all of these things are one fight after another. I think we got weary of them, weary and weary <laughs> uh, from all those fights. She was combative, which seemed kind of attractive coming out of the Emanuel administration. But then, you know, when the city is shut down after George Floyd's murder, her combative attitude was misdirected. And disappointing. Yeah, and it was. It was directed at everyone. Mm-hmm. One day she's mad at the cops, the next day she's mad at the activists. Yeah, mostly the at the activists. She showed she raised the when she raised the bridges, sent them down south. That was not an improvement. Um, yeah, it seemed like a. She lacked, at least publicly, she lacked empathy. Did you see that in her very much empathy? Um, as an abstraction, it did. I, so I think that I think you kind of have two Lori Lightfoots, where where when Lori Lightfoot is dealing with something that is not directly involving her, she mm-hmm. can be extraordinarily uh, insightful and giving and empathetic and caring. But if it touches her, uh, that disappears because she sees it as. This is a, you know, this reflects badly on me in some way, and I, I, I can't have that. I don't, I don't accept that. So, one of, one of the anecdotes in, in my book is there's a, there's a fight between. So when the Anjanette Young scandal happens, where the mm-hmm. city fought to prevent the release of video footage showing a wrongful raid on a social worker's home. Uh, State's attorney Kim Fox puts out a statement saying that the city was wrong to do this. And several months later, um, and, you know, Mayor Lightfoot does not appreciate Kim Fox weighing into this. But then several months later, Kim Fox and Lori Lightfoot have a meeting and they're discussing they're discussing uh, a conflict over a shooting on the West Side. It's kind of stupid. And. And they they end up talking privately afterward, and Lori says to Kim, "You shouldn't have piled on when the engineer Young scandal was happening." And Kim doesn't know what she's talking about at first. And Lori says, "You put out a statement criticizing me," and Kim says, "I criticize the city." And Lori says, "I am the city," and yeah. you know, for 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 Lori. It was not about um, Anjanette Young. It was not about wrong raids, which which happened far more than they should. It wasn't about those issues. It was about her. 
And I think that that incident, which again also uh, has not been reported before my book, um, and all mm-hmm. sorts of nuggets like that, um, is a really, really telling incident. Yeah, I'll say so. How how could anyone, much less a woman, not start from a point of how horrific that was uh, for Antoinette Young? I mean, it, it was appalling. And what kind of uh, disassociation did the police officers have to demonstrate in order to let her just stand there with no clothes? Uh, and, and you translate that into how they see people on the street and it's going down a bad road. Um, and for her not to see that and, and understand the nature of the of being in that room from the beginning was a disappointment. I would say. But then, you know, the mayor is always caught in this uh, trick bag, right? Because if you say anything too negative about the police, y- you know, you, you risk blue flu and, and um, they have ways to fight the city a lot more brutally than uh, the CTU, for example. Um, and so all mayors have been afraid of crossing the police in certain ways. Do so you think that was it? She didn't want to she wanted to stand by the cops was her initial instinct, as it has been historically for mayors, because they get in big trouble if they don't. Honestly, in, in that specific case, I think that her first instinct was corporate lawyer of let's let's mitigate the let's mitigate the reputational damage and let's mitigate the the legal damages to our um, mm-hmm. to ourselves. You know, we're not gonna we're not gonna be shedding a bunch of light on this. You know, we could we could talk for an hour about the engine at Young scandal, and it's you know she had gotten an email in 2019 about about what had happened and that it was that these details were coming out. She demands a phone call with her people to talk about it, and then she says that she forgets all about it up until a year later when CBS finally gets their hand on the tape and is, is about to publish it, and her lawyers go to court to cut it off. I think she was um, disgusted by what she ended up seeing in the video, and especially once it blew up on her. But if you look at her initial comments over the next couple of days, she's not, her, her forefront is not um, what happened wrong here. Uh, she was, um, she was just going to blow past it. And it's really, it's really remarkable. I mean, I quote, um, you know, Carolyn Grisco, who worked in the in the Daily Administration and who has known Lori Lightfoot for a long time, and and Grisco watched the Angina Young scandal unfold and was amazed that she was falling into the same trap that Rahm Emanuel had fallen into with with the Laquan McDonald video, right? Because it's it's effectively the same scandal, and Lori. Um, benefited enormously from a public uh, profile standpoint from her work on the police accountability task force in the wake of that. And for her to fall into the, the surveillance camera, the dash cam footage, the body worn camera footage trap is just really, really stupid. And it was an easier lift for her than, than Laquan McDonald's murder because, you know, 16 shots. Uh, there's no way to answer that. Uh, and in this case, it was horrific, but uh, an easy position to take. 
uh, easier position for her to take uh, in defense of Anjanette Young, I would say, publicly. But, but complicated, and you're right. Same formula, same response. And now we have a new mayor who we hope uh, is going to run things differently. Maybe, maybe not. I promise to let you go after half an hour, but do you have one quick take on whether new mayor, same as the old mayor? Not same as the old mayor, but, you know, you have two people who did not have executive experience and who are learning on the job. And, you know, the, right now there's a lot of frustration in a lot of circles with with Mayor Johnson, and he's entitled to he's entitled to figure it out, and maybe he will, maybe he won't. One of the things I, you know, one of the things people ask me about, and they they talk to you about as well, I'm sure, is you know you get you get the silly question of is Chicago going to be Detroit? Is Chicago on the way down? And Chicago is a city with all sorts of beauty and all sorts of problems. Uh, but you know the city, uh, the city is going to be fine, even with a, you know, let's not exaggerate. We can have one bad mayor, you can have two bad mayors. Maybe after three bad mayors, you you start to really wonder about it. Uh, but I think that um, I think that the city is strong and resilient. I think that Johnson is is uh, figuring things out. Is the um, observation I would make and. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this time, and and we'll see. He, you know, it's if you know he, he and he has a lot of challenges, including with your listeners and with all sorts of people across the city. And if I was if I was Mayor Johnson, um, I would rather start weekly and finish strong than do what Lori Lightfoot did, which is start strong and then weekly. So there's there's. There is time for him to learn and grow. And according to him, he likes to make the joke that he's going to be in office for 24 years. So he has plenty of time by his standards. <laughs> is the city still up for grabs? Uh, no question about it. There's, there's, uh, I don't think that that's what the sequel will be called. You know, the city is up for grabs, too. But, um, <laughs> I hope you trademark that because maybe. Yeah, copy, maybe. Copy maybe. Uh, Maybe someone else will will try that. The the city is absolutely still in a phase of transition, and and Mayor Johnson can very well um, take the city in a place that he wants to take the city and and firm that up. Or he might he might get eaten alive by all of the city's problems and tribes, and we won't know till. Um, well, we won't know for three years, and we won't have a really good idea for about two and a half years. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Um, And I, for one, remain hopeful uh, that that this is certainly a mayor like no other and from a background like no other. And that's why we elected him, certainly why he was chosen over Paul Vallis, who was a mayor a lot like some others. Uh, And uh, transition is rocky by the nature of it. And uh, I, I, for one, am still hopeful that he figures it out. Because it's in all of our best interest. See, this has been the dip- the diplomat hour. <laughs> Not a diplomatic book. Uh it is it is a truthful book. Um, I, I don't. Um, it is a truthful book. It's not undiplomatic, let's say, but but I, I don't know. 
I don't know that if I if I sent Mayor Lightfoot a signed copy, I don't know if she would consider that an act of diplomacy. <laughs> I think she would uh, take one of those cigars and light it up. <laughs> Which would be great as long as she puts it on Instagram or something. Oh, yeah. We want to see a picture of that. Yeah, send it to her. Let's give it a try. Let me know. Why not? Will do. <laughs> well, thank you for your time. You have generously spent with us uh, on a Saturday when you, I promised you only 30 minutes and look at the time. Always flies when we're talking. Greg Pratt, uh, author of The City is Up for Grabs, How Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot Led and Lost a City in Crisis, comes out in hardcover April 2nd. I urge you to go to your independent neighborhood bookstore. If you don't have one, you can use mine, Sand Myers on Dearborn. Uh, but you probably have one in your neighborhood. Go ahead and order your book because uh, it's going to be a great read. Thanks, Greg. We will do this again. Thank you very much. And if you want to join the conversation, uh, we can continue talking about uh, the mayor or we can make a quick dive, which is what I really want to do into national politics, because there's a crazy, well, not crazy, is a sobering New York Times Siena poll out today. Uh, more bad news for Joe Biden. If you want to join the conversation about that or anything else, give me a call at 773-763-9278. Edwin Eisentrath is taking your calls now at 773-763-9278. The big picture is on now. WCPT 820. And don't be surprised if it's not Ed answering the phone. It's me, Marge Helper, and happy to be here on a Saturday afternoon for Ed. Uh, with some kind of unhappy news, uh, the new New York Times-Siena poll is causing a lot of hand-wringing around the country among those of us who are working for Joe Biden, desperately hoping that we can win him a second term, um, or as as uh, Politico puts it today, causing widespread freakout among Dems. They quote a, they quote an unnamed uh, source who they say we all know who it is, but they're not going to tell us who it is, I guess, uh, who who says something to the effect of if you're not a bedwetter yet, you ought to be. Um, but no, I don't think so. I think we have a great story to tell about Joe Biden, uh, and we're going to tell it. We're going to knock on doors, answer phone, uh, make phone calls, and get out the vote because the majority of this country is opposed to Trump. Uh, well, that's debatable at the moment, given what this new survey shows, um, which shows in the basic horse race vote, Trump 48 percent, Biden 43. That's still even. But uh, those who follow polls are going to be more concerned about the right track, wrong track, the direction of the country question. Uh, wrong track, 65 percent. Right track, 24 percent. Job approval rate for Biden uh, down to 36 percent. Disapproval, 61 percent. That's a national poll, uh, which I uh, would like to point out in case you haven't figured that out in the last couple of elections. It's not exactly a national election, right? Um, it is a uh, an election won or lost in a couple of key states, uh, two of which happen to be within driving distance of us. So 
if you're sitting on your butt and not doing any campaign work, you have no excuse because you could drive, depending on where you are in the Chicago area, pretty easily to either Wisconsin or Michigan. And there's work to do in both of those states. So I hope you'll consider campaign work because this is an election where it's not enough just to vote. you got to turn out the vote as well among folks who understand what's really at stake here. And apparently not enough people understand it. Um, I expect most of our audience does, and I would like to hear from you uh, as to your perspective on what this new poll means and what we need to do to turn things around and what Biden needs to do. You can give us a call at 773-763-9278. we got about 10 minutes before our next guest joins us, and so you could be our next guest if you give me a call uh, to talk this through. Uh, on the Republican side, interestingly... Uh, Nikki Haley could be heading for her first primary win. I, I'd probably say first and only if it happens uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, where Republicans are voting in a primary through tomorrow evening. There's only one place to vote in Washington. I mean, granted, it's not as big a city as Chicago, but still, um, that's kind of surprising. There's only one place uh, where Republicans are letting people vote, and I'm sure they've chosen something that they feel a location will benefit them. Um, and anyway, most of his supporters in the DMV, as they call it, uh, don't live in D.C. proper anyway. So I don't know how that'll turn out, but that's what Nikki Haley thinks will work to her benefit. She could win 19 delegates if she takes all. Uh, so that would give her a surge of support, even though it won't change the inevitable. Nobody thinks it will, uh, even as we head into Super Tuesday. Um, but an interesting little twist in D.C., as as we watch um, what someone else calls a slow motion car crash, uh, where Trump is just headed for the inevitable uh, nomination and hopefully not headed back to the White House. We have work to do. Uh, Biden has brought us a lot of great change and we need to be talking about it. The economy has improved. Uh, I, I heard someone speculate that the reason immigration is the number one issue for voters right now is because they're feeling better about the economy. So <laughs> I guess that's a Pollyanna-ish view. But, um, yeah, they're complaining about immigration because the economy's improved under Biden. We should be talking about that, even though the improvement has not reached everyone and isn't um, 100 percent certain. But the direction is good. Uh, and hopefully it will continue for the rest of the year as people gain more and more confidence, which is a big part of the problem, but also as economic improvements benefit more people. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, kind of worried about Biden's popularity and how uh, Trump... Remember they called Reagan the Teflon president? At, how does... Trump is doing spray tan. Maybe he's doing spray Teflon. How does he get away with all of the behavior that he accuses Biden of? Uh, clearly, is is his M.O., and yet he's moving ahead. I don't want to say surging in the polls, but holding holding steady. Do we have that short of a memory as a country that we have forgotten? Uh the chaos and the harm 
Not to mention the threat of what he'll do in a second term. I I think if you consider what he says he'll do, he wants to be president for life. I think this could be the last fair election we have. Um, and when he talks about interference uh, and cheating in the election, it's becoming increasingly clear that that was all engineered in his direction, Russian interference, for example. Um When you hear him say who he is, believe him. 16-week national ban on abortion could be worse if, you know, Mike Pence was president. But is that what we want for this country? I I don't think so. I think we want more access uh, for women and men to make their own family decisions. This attack on uh, IVF in Alabama is a natural outcome of the downfall of Roe v. Wade. And we'll see more and more uh, tightening of women's rights to control when and how and if they have a family. But men, too. It's not just a women's issue. Uh, And I'm hopeful that that issue will uh, really help help us, in fact, lead us to victory in the fall. We have Steve on the phone from Chicago. He's been watching the polls, too. Steve, what do you have to tell us? I think we need to take a page out of uh, Nancy Pelosi's book, who I heard recently say, stop worrying, start working. Yeah, I love uh, there's it. A, there's, a number of fact, there's a number of factors. The, the polls are always going to work against the incumbent because they're the one with the, with the very current record that, you know, that everybody's talking about, whereas Trump is, it doesn't have to do any work. He doesn't have to say, oh, I just did this today, or I just did that today. Um, on top of that, we're in the unfortunate situation of with Fox News and some of the other outlets who have a consistent barrage of lies. They will never, ever report on anything good that Biden does, and they will lie about That's right. Oh, we just lost you. But I don't disagree with any of that. And those of you listening and want to know how do we do the work, try IndivisibleChicago.com. Join us, and we will uh, set you up, train you. I and my colleague Mike Lenahan are running training program for Indivisible, where we'll teach you how to canvas. We'll send experienced canvassers with you so you have no excuse to be intimidated by the process. And uh, I'll tell you, phone banking and canvassing, uh, it's really rewarding because we all can sit around and talk about what people think, what voters think. And you could look at the generic polls or the, the aggregate polls, I mean. And yet when you have the one-on-one conversations with people who share these beliefs that are so surprising to us, you get a better understanding. And don't get me wrong, we don't knock on the doors of known Trumpies. Sometimes you will accidentally find one and you wish them luck and go on your way. We're not arguing with Trumpies when we campaign for Biden. We're finding the people who uh, have voted Democratic in the past and are inclined to do so again, and we help them understand why they should. So uh, in that way, it can be upbeat. You find a lot of people who support what we're doing on the street and a lot of people who come to our point of view when we share information about what this president has done for the country, the world's the uh, biggest gun What's my phrase? The biggest uh, gun reform bill since Clinton biggest climate action bill, infrastructure, 
returning more than one and a half billion or negating more than one and a half billion in student loan debt, even though I know students were hoping for more. And one and a half billion is no small amount, and it's helped a lot of people get through school and start um, their careers and their families. So there's a long list of what he's done, and we need to be talking about that and helping people understand the alternative. Uh, we'll take away our rights and not expand them. Lou's on the line from Logan Square. You have something to say about radio, I can see. Yeah, hi. I'm um, I'm kind of uh, encouraged that I heard that George Soros has bought a bunch of AM radio stations. I don't know if you've heard that, the radio networks. Uh, part of the problem is that the only radio, talk radio, is all right-wing mostly. I mean, CPT is one of the few... Few right. islands of you know sensible talk, and um, you know I listen to Tom Hartman and shows like you. But uh, there's if you listen all day, you listen to uh, all over the country. It's nothing but right wing. So um, I think that's one. And I, I just wonder if there's uh, other ways that the right wing is becoming almost like a cult, like a religion. Um, and I think it's got to be social media. I think that what the Democrats need to do, though, is just focus on the Republicans now are saying they want to destroy Social Security. They want to destroy Medicare. They want to, you know, put women back in the dark ages. And, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you got so much uh, negative um, uh, agendas that they have to to get, you know, get people to, uh, to vote Democrat. But Democrats need to put forth the positive agenda of things that they will do, which will be, you know, health care and education for everybody. Um, I think that, though, this migrant issue that is being pushed, that every, that's the number one concern of everyone, is there's, there's a twofold response is the, you know, the bipartisan bill that's being blocked. Mm-hmm. And also, but also I disagree with Biden that he's He's continued sanctions on Venezuela, and that everybody I talk to who's on the street they're from Venezuela. And um, you know, when you put when you put sanctions on a country, then people got to leave. So um, I just disagree with that uh, policy of, of uh, you know punishing one country because they don't like their leader. Uh, You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT eight twenty. Marge Halperin here for Ed this afternoon. Happy to be here. The time is flying, and we have one more hour to go. And we're going to talk about election protection here in Illinois. I'm sure uh, you all, like me, watched the proceedings in Georgia and uh, listened to the horrific story of election workers Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, who in 2020 were doing their civic part by uh, working elections and somehow Rudy Giuliani gets a little bit of uh, footage seeing them share what turned out to be a ginger mint, not just a mint, a ginger mint. Good for her for being specific. And they're kind of yummy if you haven't had one. Why not? Passing between them. And then he claims they've got a thumb drive with the fake ballots on it. I don't know what his crazy view was. Well, we do know because he, he he tried it. Um, and the result was that they were driven from their homes. They were 
uh, personally attacked. They were doxxed. Their uh, address and personal information was made public. And the right wing went nuts uh, on these civic folks who were longtime volunteers um, and respected citizens uh, of their community. Um, they won their defamation suit against Giuliani happily, who probably doesn't have the money to pay them, clearly doesn't, but ought to uh, find it somewhere. But at any rate, we watch that and probably think smugly, well, it couldn't happen here in Illinois, uh, but maybe it could. Because right now there is no legislation to stop uh, that kind of activity, uh, spreading, doxing information about election workers um, or even creating a deep fake that shows them doing something nefarious. Uh, we, we, we tend to relax in our blue bubble, right? And think we're all pretty safe here because we're progressive. We have one of the most progressive governors in the country. Whether you saw that coming or not, that's how it's turning out, right? Um, and yet, uh, our state legislation on this is not moving as fast as it is in other states. And I want to find out more about what we need to do here and what's missing and how we could get it uh, in place before this fall, even though traditionally legislators don't like to vote on election bills in an election year. This might be the year for the exception. My guest is an expert in this area, Jonah Minkoff-Zern from Public Citizen. Jonah is uh, director of the uh, Democracy Project uh, at Public Citizen Democracy Campaign. He works to build a national movement to get big money out of politics and ensure all voters have access to the ballot which means protecting the election process and uh, opening up opportunities uh, for voters. Jonah, welcome, and thank you for taking time on a Saturday. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. Uh, one of the things you've done is uh, track national bills. That's why you came to me and other uh, activists in the state to say something here is missing and we need to fill it in. What are the most vital priorities that need to be filled in to protect elections in Illinois? Sure. And I, and I agree with you. I think, you know, we have to be doing this all over the country. It's, it's not just one state or another where election officials are under attack. It's nationwide. Um, in, a, in a survey recently, one in three election workers knew someone who was leaving their job because they didn't feel safe. Um, and one in five plan to leave themselves before 2024. Um, and the numbers really have shown that. Um, in some states, more than half election officials have left since 2020. Um, in Arizona, uh, 98% of election officials uh, are are new uh, in 2024. That so these really? are people, you know, not yeah, 98 um, percent. But this is happening all over the country, not just in a state like Arizona, where you know an election denier is at the top of the ballot. There, mm-hmm. um, it's happening all over the country, and we need to, you know, they're being threatened with lynching, with mass shootings, with murder and hanging, um, having their children threatened. Um, so we need to make sure that our election workers who are maintaining the foundations of our elect- of our democracy, who are making sure that the workings of the machine are functioning, um, are feeling safe and are able to do their jobs. Um, and I, I think it's important to note these are people who 
are just people who wanted to get involved and help the democracy. You know, they cared about it. They didn't care about fame or fortune. Um, they wanted to help out behind the scenes. They're not they're not making a great salary. Uh, they're just and mostly older people who wanted to help our democracy. Um, and it's really astounding to me and not something that I thought I would have to be doing as a democracy advocate is, is working to protect them. But we do. Um, and with that, it's really important that Illinois join states around the country that are passing laws to protect our election workers. Um, since 2022, there are 15 states that have passed laws to protect election workers. Um, actually, Washington just became the 16th this year, just waiting on the governor's signature there. Um, and there are 22 other states that have legislation moving. So it's really states are waking up to the fact this is necessary and that election workers need this support. Um, so we're glad to see a bill moving in Illinois. And as you said, it, it should be moving faster. It should be, it should be moving forward. So we want to make sure that it does. Um, and this bill, uh, it's sponsored by Representative Abdel Nasser Rashid, uh, a Northside state rep, and uh, Maurice West, who's the head of the elections committee out of Rockford, uh, co-sponsored this bill. And uh, you were searching, uh, we were looking to see what was in the works and what was being filed during the mad rush to file new bills for this session uh, in the last couple weeks. Um, And when you found this one, you let me know and you were pretty excited because it follows your model bill. So tell me a little bit about about your role in providing training to state legislators and model bills so that we know that we have the best draft forward that we could. Sure, absolutely. And and I want to clarify, there's two bills that we're talking about, and that's the bill, the bill you're talking about by Representative Rashid is around deep fakes and elections. We should talk about that. But first, mm-hmm. for the election officials, Representative Olakal, uh, is moving that bill. And you're right, we found these bills together. We worked um, in both cases. Uh, we've helped to provide language. And really what we're doing is we're seeing what states are moving legislation and then creating model legislation based on that. Uh, in the case of deepfakes in election, that's more new, artificial intelligence deepfakes. And there we work to draft it with some of our experts. But the, the election officials' legislation, we took states like Minnesota and Colorado who passed really good bills to protect our election workers. Um, we pulled from the best, the best practices in those bills. And we've been... Um, you know, showing that around to legislators around the country or introduce, inter, interested in introducing and moving this legislation and supporting them. Um, and we're one thing that we're really glad to see is that this is happening um, across the country in states ranging from Washington to Indiana, who also actually just passed it out of both houses uh, this week. I, I neglected to mention that. So it's it's across party lines that states are doing this. Not all the time. Uh, It's worth mentioning. Um, We have a bipartisan set of bills um, to protect election officials in Arizona. And that bill was was stopped by the head of the election committee there. Um, And I think the the notion that, you know, these are the people who are some of their base who are doing the threats and harassment and they don't want to move a bill that's going to. Uh, you know, get in the way of of what they're doing to election officials, which is really disturbing, the fact that this would be at all controversial. Um, But for the most part, we are seeing bipartisan support in these bills moving forward, but we we are seeing some of this resistance, which to me uh, 
is beyond just the notion that the harassment and these threats are happening is that there's actually people out there lobbying against the bills to protect election officials who are these MAGA Republicans, who are the people who are out there doing the threats and harassment. Um, and that's that's disturbing and, and just a movement that we need to address and stop. So what um, and I think what, I'm sorry, what that says ahead, is sorry. harassment works. Is that is that really what they're saying? No, keep it up. It's working. Yeah, they, they don't want to stop it. And I think that's, you know, I, we were wondering and thinking about why the, why these bills started in 2022. Why not right away in 2021 um, after January 6th, after the attacks on the Capitol, after the threats like you were mentioning in Georgia and, and others that took place to election officials. And I think most people didn't think they were going to keep going. And what's happened is Trump and the MAGA movement have continued to deny the results of the elections. Mm-hmm. They continue to attack election officials. And this is the outcome of that. These, this is the human impact um, in the short term of their threats to democracy is that the people who are making our democracy function are under attack by them. Um, and that's why a state like Arizona, where, where the MAGA movement, you know, where he is on the top of the ballot running for Senate, um, you know, where where they are the ones who are threatening our democracy, they don't want to pass bills to protect the election workers. And and we have to defeat those people by building a, a democracy movement and by protecting our democracy. I, You know, I said earlier that we are in a blue bubble here in Illinois. Um, and I think when when we had some of these initial conversations with uh, some of the elected officials we talked to, there's this idea that maybe we don't need this in Illinois. Everything will be fine here. We don't have these kind of, you know, radicals. Um, we don't. I think that's a false sense of security. Um, and you've just explained somewhat, but maybe you can elaborate. Why do we need this in every state? Sure. Well, it, it's happening everywhere. I mean, it really like that's. You know, election workers who are being surveyed are not just in a state like Arizona, but nationwide are saying they're facing these threats or saying they're facing these harassments um, are saying they don't feel safe in their job. And and again, it's notable that these are people there's a, a great film uh, about election workers. No time to fail in the 2020 election. Um, and there's this beautiful line where they talk about how. After the election, they'll go back to to being nobodies again. I think they said something to that effect, where where they're not interested in being these public figures. They're not interested in taking the, this these attacks. That's not what they ever thought they were doing. They just wanted to administer the elections and make sure democracy was working. Um, so so that's. Uh, you know, and that's happening in a state like Rhode Island in that film. That film's focused on Rhode Island election officials, not a, you know, not an intense radical state, but the state of Rhode Island. Um, and it shows that it's happening all over. And one of the scenes in the movie is a protest um, of MAGA Republicans outside the election officials' office um, after the election, protesting the results. Um, and clearly, if I was an election worker looking out like they are in the in the film, I would be scared myself um, and question whether or not I wanted to keep doing that work. Um, so it's not just uh, it's not just in a place like Arizona. It really is nationwide. 
Yeah, and I also think that um, it's our responsibility as a progressive state to be a good role model. That is, uh, you know, what kind of a progressive state are we if we aren't protecting election workers, if we aren't leading uh, the fight against these deep fakes? If the, if we aren't going to do it, how can we even expect uh, any anyone else to do it? Arizona may or may not, but Indiana I would not have predicted Indiana taking the lead uh, over Illinois. We maybe we should feel a little competitive and rise to the occasion. <laughs> I guess. Sure. I, I, I yeah, I think that's right, Marge. And I think that you know we have to be showing that states are doing this all over. The fact that we can say that it's actually 17 states now that have done this since 2022, at least passed it out of the legislature. Um, those two are waiting for their governors to sign, but, but that. Uh, that that helps make the case in other states and it helps show that there's a national movement. And I think this is as much about creating the laws as it is about condemning the actors. So I think it's important, you know, we can do that in the press. We can write op-eds, we can speak out, we can do things to condemn the actors who are doing the threats and harassment um, and who are denying outcomes of elections. Um, But also passing the bills is showing that our states, that states are serious about stopping this. Um, and showing election officials that states have their back. And I think mm-hmm. the law itself, that, that it's possible to, to execute, and there are many cases where prosecution just hasn't been possible because there's not the laws to protect these people. Um, so, so being able to prosecute uh, the people doing the threats and harassment is essential. And also showing them that the states aren't going to accept it is really important. Setting the standard. In that sense, yeah. We should be the state who speaks up for the safety of our volunteers who come, as you said. They don't do it for the money. Although there are a lot of retirees who need that 75 bucks or whatever they get paid for working 12 hours. Um, 75 bucks and all the donuts you can eat, which is the tradition here in Chicago. That's not much pay for working all day, I would say. Um for sure, and uh, standing up for them and for uh, the f- fair elections is something that our state should do. We, w- when we talked earlier, and I don't know what your current number is, but at one point you told me, and this was maybe a month ago, that Illinois is one of only 11 states that at that time either didn't have the uh, legislation enacted or didn't have it introduced. Well, we've introduced it since other states have. What's the running number of states that are are not even considering election worker protection? There are only um, five states right now that have not either passed or introduced bills. There are some states, uh, about 10, that had legislation on the books before 2022 protecting election workers. Um, so there are only five states that haven't introduced them. There, there are a few that haven't passed this year for various reasons already, um, and we have to keep working in those states. So, um, But the, there are only five states who haven't considered it at all. So it's really, you know, this is really sweeping the nation, um, the necessity to do this, and states are, are seeing that it's, that it's necessary to do it now and it's necessary to do it in advance of the 2024 election. Well, that's exciting, especially in the context of what I said earlier, that legislators say, well, you're not supposed to impact election procedure in an election year. I I understand that basic premise because it's a tempting time for the party in power to uh, tip the scales a little in their favor with whatever kind of ballot access or lack of access they want. Like, look at all the states in 2020 that uh, uh, passed 
bills that limited vote by mail or where the ballot drop boxes could be if you had vote by mail, those kinds of things that were clearly designed to tamp down the vote, especially in our neighboring Wisconsin, for one example. Um, But this kind of thing is not in that mold. This is for the good of a fair, free and open election. And uh, I am glad for our state legislators who are uh, taking the lead to consider these. We've got a bit of a process ahead. Um, we need to be sure that we have um, subject matter hearings and that these actually move forward in committee uh, to get a vote. It's a busy uh, legislative season. It always is in Illinois because it's so short. Um, we got to be sure these bills rise to the top. So if you're listening, it's a good idea to call your legislators um, and tell them you're interested in both of these bills There's uh, the one we've been talking about, Protects Election Workers. That's House Bill 4827, uh, introduced, as you said correctly, by Representative uh, Kevin Olakal, who is the Northside representative. I mixed him up. (laughs) Sorry about that at the opening. That's fine. I do that all the time, Art. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to keep it straight, but I should have known better. Rashid is uh, West Suburbs, I believe, and uh, he's got the deep fakes bill which uh, we'll talk about in a few minutes, uh, but I wanted to exhaust this one first. You said there's only five states who haven't advanced this kind of bill. Can you name them? Is that a trick question? Um, Sure. It's a good trick. Uh, It's uh, Arkansas, Idaho. um, And Idaho actually has a great bill around uh, insider threats, which is another issue that we're working to address. Um, so just as a quick side note, um, the, the other kind of other side of the coin here is that there are election officials who are election deniers um, who have gotten in there in places like Mesa County, Colorado, in um, Coffee, Georgia, and are using their access to try to undermine the election process. So we're also working around the country to do bills uh, to protect, uh, to make sure the election is administered effectively and that they're not uh, using their access to do that. So it's things like uh, making sure that that tampering uh, uh, ballots is illegal, making sure that um, there are key card access, that passwords aren't shared, Um, basic things that, again, you know, wouldn't think you need to do, but that election to make sure that election workers on the inside are not uh, are, are not creating a problem themselves. So there's a great bill in Idaho, but they have not moved to election protections yet. So it's Arkansas, Idaho, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee. Uh, Mississippi has a bill in process but hasn't moved it yet. So those are the five. Ah. Um, interesting list and interesting that Idaho might be taking the lead on uh, these insider threats, although it sounds like that's not maybe going anywhere. Um, because of the insider threat, probably, uh, ironically, um, it's hard to put it past those who have nefarious goals and have power. Um, it's, do, you, do you have a vision of how this election will go from the standpoint of the election deniers and those of us fighting for fair elections? Are we going to see the same long, drawn-out challenge uh, if— if Trump loses, as we hope and expect and work for him to do? 
You know, I, I think we need to be ready. Um, I hope not would be my answer. I think it was really hopeful in 2022 that election deniers who were on the top of the ticket lost across the board. Um, and that really, you know, except maybe in Wisconsin, but um, other than that, you know, the Senate people running for Senate, for secretary of state, um, those election deniers in prominent, prominent races um, lost their elections. And, you know, except for uh, I'm blanking on her name in, in Arizona, the gubernatorial candidate, most of them just gave up the ghost afterwards and they Carrie didn't Lake. fight. They accepted yeah. Carrie Lake. I, for some reason, I was, so Carrie, except for Carrie Lake, you know, generally they they gave in when they lost um, and uh, and accepted the results and they lost. So I think that's really hopeful. And, you know, that wasn't a result we were expecting when we were planning for that elect- that election. We were planning on what to do when people were despondent and when those results happened. So we were really grateful and glad to see that people turned out and voted for democracy. Um, so hopefully, you know, we're nonpartisan, but hopefully people believe that democracy is a key issue to go out and vote for again. And hopefully that's decisive enough and significant enough that there won't be threats uh, to the results. On the other hand, I do think we need to be ready. You know, we had a mobilization called Count, uh, Count Every Vote, where we had about 300, 350 rallies around the country planned in 2020 if Trump refused to accept the results of the election and, paused, and posed a credible threat when he did that. Uh, we didn't actually end up mobilizing those because Fox had called Arizona for Biden, and we felt like we didn't want to create more of an upheaval. Um, but so we felt like his his threat was not credible at that point um, in that way. But we do need to be ready for that possibility that he's going to try to deny the election, that he's going to try to stop the counting of ballots, um, you know, in states where there's vote by mail and we need to wait for those results. We need to make sure people are ready for that and also ready to get out there and protest if and then prevent Trump from trying to get in the way of counting the results. I, I do think that's a possibility. And hopefully things will go like they did in 2022, where where that's not the outcome. Um, and hopefully people will go out and vote for democracy. I think that's really important. We certainly, certainly hope so. And you're right. Uh, election night and the days that followed uh, looked like uh, it was a safe win for Biden. Uh, then came January 6th, as we all know, unprepared for that. How could you prepare for that? But better be prepared for it again. Uh, I agree with you. We're fools if we don't think that could happen again. He's promised it would, basically. I That's think. right. And we also need to be absolutely, absolutely. And we also need to be making sure we're supporting accountability for him now. You know, the first first election interference case, uh, which stems around his interference in 2016, uh, where he paid one hundred and thirty thousand dollars to to make sure information that he thought could could prevent voters from voting for him in 2016. You know, that trial is coming up on March 25th in New York City. And we need to make sure that we're speaking out, that we're emphasizing that that case is about interference in elections, not about uh, hush money, as it's been called, because the Mm -hmm. cheating on his wife took place almost 10 years before. His wife knew he cheated on him. He was spending the $130,000 to interfere in the 2016 election, to interfere in the results. And that's we need to make sure people understand that and that Trump is not above the law. 
um, and have that message and have those conversations as we enter into the first trial in March. Yeah, you're right. The salacious details have sort of won out and it's fun to chuckle about it or fun, but people are attracted to that uh, kind of conversation. But the fact is he, he was trying to prevent that whole relationship from being public at a time when it uh, would have cost him the election. Should have cost him the election. He may have. And, you know, right after the the tape was released, he he was in a situation where his mistreatment of women was was seriously on the minds of the American public. And and he didn't want another issue to be made public about that. Um, And I Mm -hmm. and. You know, he felt like he got away with it. So then he tried to interfere in the 2020 election. Um, And that's why we need to hold. That's why he needs to be held accountable uh, by a court of law. And that's why this March 25th trial in New York City is so important as as a first one that will go to court. Well, we hope we have the outcome that uh, reveals uh, his intent and the potential result. Had it not been um had it not been, had it, had, if it was not adjudicated properly, and the fact that he could do it again because he promises that he will, uh, and we need to believe what he says he wants to be as a candidate and potentially as a second-term president, uh, and we need to do the work as we've been talking about. Looking forward to hearing from some of our listeners. We've got a couple calls uh, waiting. Uh, My guest is Jonah Minkoff-Cern from Public Citizen, an expert in election protection and uh, access to the vote. You've done incredible work in all these ways we've been talking about and more. Um, We'll address this uh, issue of deep fakes and what kind of a threat they are to a fair uh, and open election when we return. And if you want to call us in the meantime, happy to have you join the conversation, 773 Seven six three nine two seven eight. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT eight twenty. You're listening to Marge Halperin in for Ed this afternoon. I can't believe uh, how fast the time goes when you're having fun, but. More than that, when you're having fun with uh, smart, knowledgeable guests, as we have been all afternoon and continue now uh, with Jonah Minkoff-Cern from Public Citizen, who has been tracking election protection bills as part of their overall uh, campaign for democracy and to ensure that we all have uh, fair, open elections and that every voter has access to the ballot, which sadly is not uh, the case around the country. Um, there was a there was a study out today. I think in my inbox from you actually when I when I pause and think about where I saw this uh, about uh, people of color uh, participating less and less in elections. Now you sent that on to me today, didn't you? Yeah, actually, I'm glad you mentioned it, Marge. It was literally just in front of me. I thought we, I thought it'd be important to address, even though it's you know it's a side today. Um, but really, actually, I think in a lot of ways, at the heart of what we're talking about um, is that uh, there are people who are threatened by a multiracial democracy where everyone participates and everyone votes and has has a voice. And I think really, when we get down to it, that's the movement that we're fighting against: the MAGA movement and Trump. Um, so it, what's happened, though, this is a, was a really stunning report that came out uh, by the Brennan Center that showed a significant increase uh, between black and white voters 
um, around the country, but specifically in areas that have been targeted uh, by because of the Shelby Supreme Court ruling that undermined the Voting Rights Act, that undermined the protections in certain parts of the country that had a history of racist voting policies. In those states, in those areas, um, there has been a significant increase in disparity in voting. Um, in, for example, in Section 5 counties, it's grown by 11 percent, uh, that that disparity. And we, and when we think about 11 percent point in uh, a growth in disparity in voting and the significant number of people that means are not voting, people of color are not voting, that can really be the outcome of a state and federal election in all these close races and how close uh, some of the state races have been uh, since 2010 when the ruling happened. Um, or two, sorry, I'm getting the year wrong, but 2000 and, uh, uh, since the Shelby ruling, um, we, mm-hmm. in 2013, I'm sorry. Um, so these laws that states are passing to make to put up barriers to voting laws that they know will make it specifically harder for voters of color to vote are working. They, as far as they're concerned, they are mm-hmm. preventing people from voting. They are decreasing the percent of voters of color who are going to the ballot. Um, so we need to. This is, shows the urgency, and, I, and this study came out in a notable moment where. The Voting Rights Advancement Act was reintroduced. The John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act uh, was reintroduced by Senator Warnock this week. Um, And also this Sunday marks the anniversary of Bloody Sunday or the the commemoration of the anniversary of Bloody Sunday um, in Selma. So we, you know, this is a moment where where we have to where where we have to have the same fights that we've had. You know, we talk with, we work with Martin Luther King III, and he talks about how his daughter, um, who's I think about 15 now, has less rights than she did when she was born as a voter in Georgia, that it's more difficult for her to vote, um, and how we are, we are really in a moment where we need to fight for the eligibility to vote for, for every American, um, and to fight against these suppressive voting laws, and ultimately to pass these, this federal legislation, um, and to be really aware, um, as you said, of states like Wisconsin that are working to suppress the vote um, and be active in, in working to prevent that. Sure. You know, you pass you pass laws that restrict the availability of ballot boxes in uh, communities where they are predominantly people of color, and people of color can't vote. It's a uh, not a surprise, but uh, a sad realization. And I'll add that his daughter also has fewer rights as a woman, which is than she did when she was born, which is uh, also sad and something that is at stake in in this election uh, for sure. Um, I promised we would turn to the second bill that is uh, on offer here in Illinois, which is about deep fakes. And uh, I know we're all getting increasingly concerned about AI. And there's a sense that, well, you know, I'll know if it's true or not. You show me Biden um, saying something um, MAGA-like and you'll know that he didn't really say that. Um, But it's not so easy uh, the way they come out, is it? Should we – what do we need to do 
rather than count on our own ability to be astute enough to judge them when we can see the technology is passing, is surpassing our ability to evaluate a deep fake, what are the ways to protect us from them and what is in this bill that is on the table in Illinois? Sure. And this is this is really a significant threat and I think one we can address. And I guess in in saying that, I think it's important that we note that these threats to our democracy also can be an opportunity if we organize, if we mobilize, if we win. And I think they are representative of a hopeful transformation of our country where we have multiracial leadership, where we have women in leadership, where we have uh, LGBTQ people in leadership, where we have a, a different kind of democracy and a different kind of nation that really is work moving towards representing all people. Um, that if we work on these things, we can achieve that. So I think we should be hopeful in the face of these challenges um, and that that's what's going to enable us to to really move our, our nation ahead and work to address them. So the issue of a deep fake, um, as you said, it's when a video, a picture, or audio of a person is created um, – generally with malintention, um, to show them doing or saying something that they didn't do. So uh, some prominent examples of that, there's a picture of Trump hugging Fauci that that DeSantis put out uh, in his campaign. There was the recent robocall of Biden in New Hampshire, where where a recording that was Biden, but was not was not really him doing it, was telling people in New Hampshire not to go vote in the primary. Um, there are really significant oh, yeah. example, examples that have taken place around the world now. Um, and actually, before I mention those, in North Carolina right now, uh, there is a special election, a congressional election, where a deep fake came out two days ago uh, showing one of the candidates doing and saying things that he didn't do. Uh, so this is happening as recently as this week. Uh, but in there's in Argentina, um, where where the right-wing candidate uh, won that election, the extreme right-wing candidate, deep fakes played a really major role in that election, um, may have really influenced the outcome. Um, in Slovakia, where the pro-Russia candidate won, uh, there was a deep fake candidate, that, or deep fake uh, audio that he put out of his opponent right before the election, uh, saying that he was trying to throw the election and acting in a fraudulent way and also was going to increase taxes on beer. Uh, so this was a, a video or an audio that that the uh, pro-Russia candidate put out who won, um, won the election, won that close election in Slovakia. Um, these are really, con- these are real concerns, and those are just some examples uh, that are happening around the world um, and in the United States now of deep fakes influencing or attempting to influence the outcomes of elections. Um, there are significant things already happening to push back. So we, as public citizens, filed uh, a petition to the Federal Election Commission calling on the FEC to put out rules and monitor it. We haven't had a response. We're grateful that tens of thousands of people supported that petition and major organizations supported that petition. Um, also, there is federal legislation, interestingly, being moved by a very bipartisan group that includes it's Klobuchar as the lead sponsor and Josh Howley is another lead sponsor on it. And we, we don't often see that or ally wow. with Josh Howley on things, <laughs> but um, he not exactly the pro-democracy person in our eyes, but, but uh, he is a sponsor in this bill, which shows that there really is cross-party 
um, passion for addressing the issue of deep fakes because I think they can all see that this could affect them and influence them. Uh, we're not sure whether that bill is going to move federally, uh, especially just with the House such a mess mm-hmm. and that. Uh, specifically the Republican leadership in the House being so obstructionist and dysfunctional. Uh, But we are, so we are also moving state legislation. And actually mentioned, uh, another important thing to mention is the FCC, after that robocall of Biden in New Hampshire, uh, the false robocall Mm -hmm. telling people not to vote, the FCC uh, put out rules that ban uh, robocalls that use AI-generated voices. So that was great to see the FCC doing that. Also, the tech companies have signed an accord uh, to combat AI-generated election uh, deep fakes. So it's good to see them acting on it. We know that we can't trust uh, tech companies to protect our democracy and, and that that's not enough, but it was good to see them receiving enough public pressure that they're acting on it. Um, so finally, we're working across the country to move state legislation and, and support legislators in moving state legislation. Um, and we're really happy to see we, we had no idea how fast and significantly this would grow. But there are 41 states now that have either passed, eight states have passed, and an additional uh, 33 have introduced legislation to address state fakes in elections. Um, really very much bipartisan, really moving very quickly, um, and uh, including in Illinois, where there's a bill there, as you mentioned, uh, to uh, uh, um, getting the bill number here. It's uh, HB 4644, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. by a Representative Rashid, Representative West, um, that, that would address deep fakes and actually has a hearing this week on Tuesday um, in the Ethics and Election Committee. So that bill is, is moving forward, which is great to see. Oh, great. We need information about witness slips. Uh, someone should be feeding us that. We'll follow up with Representative Rashid and be sure we understand the timing and can have our voices heard there. Um, you know, while you were talking about the international threat, I was reminded of a part of the conversation in the Hal Sparks show, which preceded ours this afternoon, um, where they were talking about uh I'm not going to get this quite right, but some of our folks may have been listening then, too. Uh, China has released some programming that helps uh, bad actors, well, anybody, but take over dormant Twitter accounts. Like Twitter is, you know, a, a wasteland already if you are still on there. And I am. You could follow me at Marge Halpern, but I don't uh, do a whole lot over there. More on threads these days. Also at Marge Halpern if you want to follow me. But I, um, But the picture of... The ability to take over these dormant accounts, there are, you know, millions of them where people started uh, on Twitter and left for various reasons but didn't close their accounts. Those could all now become bots for deep fakes and whatever else um, people want to put on them. And China has made it easier to access those dead accounts um, and bring them to life with whatever messages you want to reflect in them. Uh, That... Now, when I consider that in light of this deep fake conversation, it's truly frightening um, that we could be bombarded. And when you see it, isn't this the thing? You look at it and you go, eh, nah, that can't be right. But then you see it again. You see it again and again in your feed, and it starts to feel very real. Um, and that's the threat as you, you know, people say, I can't believe my eyes. Well, you do believe your eyes, but maybe you shouldn't. 
when it's when it's so uh, frequent and it gets passed around like lightning, uh, that's how it works, right? Right, and I mean, I think they're you know they're putting a lot of work into figuring out what will influence us and what will get to us. You know, if we think about the Russian interference in the 2016 mm-hmm. election, um, and that they had a warehouse full of people, you know, with people who were working to create content and create voices that were that were racially divisive, that were divisive around issues of gender, that were creating sowing division in order to promote Donald Trump's presidency. Um, and we think about how much easier now it is to create an artificial intelligence deepfake. And I think that's important to mention that the idea of creating a deepfake, creating a false video or audio or, or picture of someone is becoming increasingly easy to do. Uh, the technology is becoming increasingly easy. And the ability to create something that's indiscernible is becoming increasingly easy. And that's happening so quickly. So we have to address it. And I think... With all of this, we can be actors in working towards a solution. So, for example, I think that the the robocall, the false robocall in New Hampshire, the media did a great job exposing that that had happened um, and talking about it. People created a dialogue around it. And I don't know what happened as far it's hard to say whether more people voted or less people voted. But hopefully that outrage over the robocall got more people involved. We got more people voting. And all of us right now, you know, as you, as you mentioned, we all have our own social media accounts. We all have our ways of communicating with people. We all are the media in that way. And it's up to us to be putting out correct information, to be getting people to vote. And we are working to mobilize. I know you're working to mobilize people to vote and just getting people out to vote is part of the work to remedy this situation, as well as signing up to be poll workers. Um, EmpowerThePolls.org, it's PowerThePolls.org is a place where anyone can go and sign up to be a poll worker, to be part of the process. But getting involved is really the ultimate solution to these attacks on our democracy. And that's how we can build something better through a challenging moment. I totally agree with that. Um, And I'll be in Wisconsin on April 2nd for their uh, primary, and I've done this before as a poll observer. You you don't have to live in Wisconsin to stand there at the polls and be the one who tips off Wisconsin Democrats uh, about nefarious activity that are happening or if someone is being denied the right to vote inappropriately. Um, you can't say anything present in the in the polling place, but you can follow them outside, connect them to Wisconsin Democrats who will help make sure their vote is counted. So uh, powerthepolls.org is a great place to go to find out where you can be helpful in in ensuring that everyone has access to the ballot and their votes are counted because when we vote, we win. Uh, to twist uh, Jan Schakowsky's favorite phrase. We also have to do the work. She's right about that. We we have a caller. I want to get a couple of calls before our time is up. Al from Franklin Park has been waiting patiently to uh, hopefully talk to us uh, about what's happening here in Illinois. Al, what do you have to share with us? Uh, good afternoon. Yeah, I, I have myself getting the Republican newsletter, and uh, you're right about, you know, having to be aware of uh, keeping the poll workers uh, uh, safe here in Illinois. And, you know, uh, one of the things they have in their uh, newsletter weekly is an election integrity committee. And they are working to get uh, poll, poll workers and judges using that committee 
and you know it talks about being fair and transparent but i guess i just wonder what you might know about that and of course i'm uh worried a little bit that 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 might be more towards you know uh 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 not always for the right reasons yeah Yeah, i mean i Go ahead. Uh, absolutely. I, I think you're right. I think that it's it's something to be concerned about their, quote, election integrity efforts, unquote. I think they're they're working to, you know, as we talked about in that study that came out today showing the decrease in voters of color, proportionate decrease in voters of color at the polls. This is another way that they're working to to place barriers to people to voting, which is why it's so important that people who do believe in elections, who do believe that everyone should have access to the polls, we should get out there. We should be poll monitors, as March said, you know, stand outside the polls and help people who are having trouble and be poll workers and be inside, making sure that people are, are able to vote and helping people get the provisional ballot if they need it, helping people under making sure that they uh, helping them in every way possible to make sure that they have access and can vote. So those are essential pieces in us pushing back, as well as just exposing them. Um, and like like we talked about earlier, people went out and voted against the election deniers in 2022 and making sure people understand this threat to our democracy from the election deniers um, so that they get out there and participate um, and vote for democracy is is very important. Um, and, and again, we're not partisan, but we do have to address the issues that are, are threatening our democracy and, and make sure that people are getting out and voting and participating. We're organizing mass texting to engage with people, to make sure they're registered, to make sure they're signing up and voting, uh, working with civil rights organizations to do that. And we want to make sure we follow through and get people out and volunteering and knocking on doors and playing an active role in making sure that this election this year um, is productive and trying to take down those numbers that uh, uh, of, of this, take down that disparity between voters of color and white voters that is increasing in so many places. Right. I mean, there are a lot of forces working against us, uh, but that doesn't mean we can't win because and I I like to point this out. So listeners have probably heard me say this before. Uh, We have this huge grassroots network, Indivisible, certainly part of that swing left, move on, sister district. Uh, There are many, many uh, groups that are organizing grassroots turnout among progressive voters. We didn't have this in 2016. We did. Many of us work for uh, directly volunteering for the campaign, which made some poor choices uh, in our uh, neck of the woods, Wisconsin. We're talking about you. Um, but so the campaign could have done better. But now we have this overlay of grassroots workers who are uh, coordinating with the Democratic Party, but also working on our own with the relationships that matter in communities. For instance, with Indivisible, we've been supporting uh, Block. That's a BLOC. Um, uh, and I can't tell you what it stands for at the moment, but Angela Lang has been leading uh, get out the vote efforts and community grassroots uh, door knocking year round in black communities uh, in the Milwaukee area. So that kind of work didn't happen for the 2016 election, but it's out there now. And it's part of why we won in 2020 people like Angela and people working around Detroit and uh, other communities of color uh, to get out the vote 
we're not working in 2016. And you can join this effort by coming through IndivisibleChicago.com and find out what our opportunities are or go to Wisconsin Dems, Michigan Dems in Michigan. The Indivisible movement is called SWIM, Statewide Indivisible Michigan, and they're doing fabulous work and we're partnering with them in southwest Michigan. Again, if you live in the Chicago area, you have no excuse. You can drive within an hour to either Michigan or Wisconsin where this election will be decided and we'll show you how we'll train you and we'll go out with you and hold your hand as you knock on your first doors and then you'll tell us you don't need us anymore because it's fun and easy and you'll see that i'm right when you get out there and knock on doors um, appreciate all your time jonah and all the work that you and the great folks at public citizen have been doing to help protect the vote and uh, i'm happy to be your partner personally and i know uh, indivisible chicago is happy uh, that you're out there telling us how we can be more effective in protecting the vote in our state and elsewhere. Do you have any summary that you want to deliver? I'll give you your last word. Um, well, you're a great partner too, Marge. We're, we're so grateful for you there. And I want to just do a shout out to public financing in Chicago too in that effort. And that's a really important one for everyone to support who's listening too, that that's a real possibility there as passing public financing. But Overall, I just want to say get involved, you know, get involved with Marge, get involved at where citizen.org is our website. Um, and that's how we're going to win these struggles is to get active and uh, and have our voices heard. There are so many ways, as I said a minute ago, so a huge network of volunteers and volunteer leaders who understand the election process and they know how to turn out the vote. They just need the hands and the phones and the people willing to man them and knock on doors and that's you so no more sitting on the couch uh solely listening to talk radio we're glad you're listening now you got to get out and do the work so i want to thank jonah and all my guests today uh, joe ferguson cam buckner in our first hour talking about stadiums uh greg pratt and uh hope you will go look for his book the city's up for grabs it comes out on april 2nd because it's going to be a pretty exciting read um and shed some light on what we just went through under mayor lightfoot um and my thanks to the folks at WCPT who supported me here today. Paul Shavari, who is uh, sitting opposite me at the board. Matt Cummings, Tim Hogan, Mark Pinsky. If you want to keep the conversation going, as I said, you can follow me on Twitter, but I'd rather see you on threads. I'm at Marge Halperin. You can visit Indivisible Chicago on Facebook, Insta, and Twitter. We're at Indivisible Shy. Uh, sign up. Stay on top of the issues. We'll send you emails every day if you want them, tell you about the witness slips and the ways you can get involved. Stay tuned for Collaboration Radio with the wonderful Anthony Mosley, who just poked his head in and is about to share some fabulous Chicago artists with you. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.